Welcome back to the podcast that peeks behind the curtain and tells the real stories of not just Devil's Legend, Neil Francis, but all of our special guests as well. And uh, we've got a pearler of a guest today. We'll introduce him in a second. But right now, I'd just like to say uh, hello again to everyone. I'm Gareth Hewish, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by Mr. John Donovan. Hey, uh, hi everybody, and uh, uh, my, my fault we haven't been on for a while, so I take full responsibility for that, guys. So I've, uh, I've been Betty Ford Clinic drying out, uh, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and all that, so uh, full responsibility for me, uh, that's why there hasn't been an episode for a while. Yeah, we had to wait till he got a haircut and he was allowed back on Absolutely. the screen. <laughs> and of course, the man on the marquee, Mr. Neil Francis. How are you doing, Franny, sir? Hey, guys, good to be back. It's... Uh... I couldn't even tell you whether it's been two days or three years <laughs> since our last podcast because I think time has just merged into into one. And you know what seems like last week is you know it's probably a year ago. It's it's mind blowing that it's nearly a year since we had our last game at the uh, at the arena, uh, and you know the season was called off prematurely. And you know we're we're now in February. We would be in the stretch, you know, well, we probably would have had it in the bag by now, wouldn't we? Um, <laughs> and be in our playoff um, preparations. But um, yeah, it's been, you know, it's, it's been quite the, the year for everybody. And, uh, you know, probably hopefully... a good time to bring it up then, Franny. Um, you, you still owe me a tenner from Challenge Cup night. So uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll pick that up soon. Yeah? I was a tenner for Challenge Cup. Did we bet on the final? Didn't we? No, no, no. Just, just, you know, just, just oh. generally you're in the bar and, uh, you know, <laughs> I'll collect whenever you're ready. You could say ten a hundred quid. I wouldn't remember. It's been, yeah, it's, been it's been a it's been a weird old twelve months or eleven months yeah. or whatever it is. But uh, yeah, it's um, you know as we hopefully have you know started to hear some some good news and light at the end of the tunnel and you know as a uh, as things start taking shape here, um, it's good to get back into the podcast and. Uh, and get talking hockey again because you know I don't know about you guys but uh, you know I, I'm missing it hugely uh, missing all the the people down at the rink especially I think that's probably the the biggest thing that I'm missing is uh, you know is is the faces down the rink and you know stopping for chats um, you know that with, with hockey that brings us all together. I just miss you, Dad. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, <laughs> I did. I did. I did get to spend Christmas Day with him, which was, uh, you know, a, a blessing of of lockdown because he was our sort of one in the bubble, if you like. Yeah. Him and uh, him and his partner um, came into our bubble because you're allowed that for for Christmas Day. So that's the first Christmas Day I've had with my dad in you know years and years and years. So that was, uh, you know, that was something to be thankful for. And you, you know, you got to take the 
you got to take the wins like that. But um, yeah, you know, lots of people that uh, looking forward to seeing when we uh, when we hopefully get things uh, on the road. Um, you know, and one guy is is the guy that we have on our pod tonight. Well, I'll Ringo Starr there. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, we've uh, got, a, uh, like I said, a pearl of a guest today. We've got the, uh, well, I say new Cardiff Devils coach. I guess now he's just the Cardiff Devils coach. He's been uh, in post uh, for, for a long a while now. Um, Jared Scaldi. I know, the, the Ringo Star haircut. It's. <laughs> I was trying to be quiet in the corner and hoping no one notices that a, a fourth person has sneaked in because I'm not going to take anything Oh, away no, from we've got to give you some fanfare. That's <laughs> the first show back. Yeah, we it's... certainly have. Uh, we've got to make this podcast bigger and better. And to do that, we needed someone who actually knows what they're doing when it comes <laughs> to editing. And, and uh... because we couldn't get them, we've got <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I paid so Neil Brass as a tenor to do this because apparently he owes it to Joy. To, to, to yeah. <laughs> that's how that's linking round. <laughs> so, producer Hubs, welcome to the team. Thank you. It's uh, a pleasure to have you. And uh, thank you so much for agreeing to uh, yeah, you, make this sound, uh, you know, somewhat professional. Because the content, <laughs> the least we can do is have the uh, actual, you know, mechanics of it sound good. Anyway, guys, who have we got joining us? We have Mr. Jared Scaldi, the Cardiff Devils head coach, who's going to talk us through his career from OHL champion through to the star of the, the NHL, the AHL, some stints in Europe. It's one of the most fascinating, unique uh, journeys and stories that you, you'll hear from anyone in hockey. And um, before we get to see him straight his coaching stuff in action, uh, we thought it'd be good to find out what his hockey philosophy is, what his background is, where he's come from, what his, uh, his hockey breeding is. And uh, guys, you know, we've uh, peeked behind the curtain. We've already done the interview and it's going to be something that uh, I'm sure every Devils fan and hockey fan is going to want to listen to. So, Jared, good to see you, man. How are you holding up uh, back in uh, Canada? How are things over there? Oh, good. Good to see everybody. I'm just in southern Ontario, about an hour uh, south of Toronto here. So, Man, it's been just Groundhog Day for, for so long. We're <laughs> approaching a year now, coming up here in March for us. We, we were sent home in Wilkes-Barre last year at Pittsburgh's farm team on March 12th. And uh, thought it was going to be a maybe a weekend. We'll get this sorted out and we'll be back on the ice in no time. And a year later, we're still uh, trying to figure things out. So we're uh, we're we're still in a lockdown phase here. Where there's no restaurants, we're moving back into that phase which we had throughout the summer. But otherwise, just uh, trying to stay sane, trying to stay warm. A lot of snow and cold here, but um, uh, the good part about where I'm at is that this is where I'm from originally, Niagara Falls, Ontario. So there's a lot of friends and family, um, people I haven't seen in a long time or spend extended period of times with. So. Um, it's, it, it's been great. Just try to enjoy those moments as much as possible before we, we get some clarity and move forward and, uh, start the next journey into, uh, the Cardiff Devils family. Well, we are really excited to be able to get to speak to you, uh, Jared. And 
uh, you know, you've given us a perfect little uh, segue into our start here. You're uh, currently living where you were you were born and brought up. What was uh, the hockey scene like when you were a child? Was it a typical rink in the backyard, uh, skating all the time? Where did your love of hockey come from? Yeah, I, I, mean, the, I think the love of hockey just comes naturally. Um, you're just surrounded by it so much at a young age of growing up in southern Ontario or Ontario for that matter across Canada. So, um, you know, I took the hockey at a very young age. A little known fact, though, I started off as a goaltender. I just thought that that was amazing. And I loved like every little kid on the your, your carpet in the living room watching the Toronto Maple Leafs on a Saturday night and being the goalie. And I realized when you're eight years old and you go in net, it's really boring because there's no shots, no one's any good. And um, I realized the next year that I wanted to become a forward. And so I, I, I the next year playing tra uh, travel hockey, that's what I did. But um, you know, it's just being in this environment of, uh, of, of hockey everywhere and everybody I knew played hockey, everybody, you talked about hockey, you watched hockey and it, it just became quickly something I wanted to do. I wanted to play in the National Hockey League and uh, um, very fortunate to grow up in an area that, um, you know, is very passionate about it. Jared, is, is hockey night in Canada as cliched as everyone makes out? You know, we watch it over here. Is it everyone comes in off the pond and sits around the TV and watches Don Cherry on a Saturday night? Is, 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 it, <laughs> is it how it's made out to be? It is, exactly. I, <laughs> when I hear that song, and that song would come on, the Hockey Night in Canada song would just send shivers in your down your body. You couldn't wait. The game's about to start. And Coach's Corner was so important. You had to hear what Don Cherry had to say. And, and whatever he said was 100% gospel. You know, he was right. He was the expert. We don't have to listen to him anymore. Um, but, um, he's moved on. Yeah. And, um, but no, it is. It's, it, it's exactly even when I was playing pro and, um, you know, a lot, the majority of my career was spent in the United States, but we would play some teams in Canada and it must have to be maybe on a Saturday night, very rarely, but every opportunity to catch a hockey night in Canada and then that same feeling even in your 20s and 30s, you'd hear that song and be Toronto, Montreal. And it was like, you know, as soon as it came on, you just love it. And so, you know, it is, it's a real thing. It's a real thing that, 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 that you're asking. And um, it's an emotional thing. And uh, it's, it was a big part of our lives. Saturday night, you, you sat around and watched the hockey game. And, and, you know, generally it was the Leafs where I'm from, but then uh, you got to catch the odd West coast game when the Oilers were good in the eighties. So it was great to watch the Leafs and then watch the Edmontoners and Wayne Gretzky and Messier and Curry and Grant Fuhr and all so these the great old, players. The old Canada basketball. division, because I'm not watching any other uh, division at the moment. It's just the, the, the Canadian <laughs> division. It, it must be pretty cool to have those matchups. It, it, it is great. Like uh, when they first said the Canadian division, it, you know, let's see how this goes, but I I'm with you too. I watch uh, probably 80% of the games I'm watching right now are the Canadian division and not just because I'm a Leaf fan, but I, I want to see Calgary. I want to see Montreal. Ottawa is like watching a train come off the rails. You yeah. just can't stop watching. <laughs> I'm watching Ottawa play too. Yeah. <laughs> I usually shut the TV off when it's about 9-1. Yeah. I've I, I, I got my fix. There we go. <laughs> Those Saturday nights watching the Hockey Night in Canada, who did Jared Scaldi want to be? Who, who were the guys that you looked at and thought, that's going to be me one day? 
Early on, the, the first few players that resonated were like Daryl Sittler for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Mike Palmatier was the goaltender I spoke of that that would really want. I wanted to be Mike Palmatier in net. I wanted to play goal. Gloria Salming, I remember my dad telling me stories about, you know, one of the first Swedes to come over and how difficult it was for him because, you know, European players were viewed as taking our jobs. And uh, it wasn't easy for them. You know, and you, you got Inga Hammerstrom and Boreas Salming came over and, and guys tried to run them every night. And for what Boreas Salming did throughout his career in North America and in the NHL, you got to add the layer on of the fact that every night he was a he was a targeted player because he was European and from Sweden. And so um, those were the initial guys. And then once Wayne Gretzky, um, you know, emerged, um, you know, that was that was the be all end all. You know, for me, Wayne Gretzky, just everything about Gretzky and and even the Oilers at that time throughout the early 80s and, and late 80s was um, was really special to just wake up every day. And just couldn't wait to see how many points Wayne Gretzky got the night before, you know, <laughs> four goals and two assists or something. It was just uh, it was it was amazing. So um, those were the early type players that I really tried to Peter Stastny, such an unforgotten or a, a, a player that was so much better than he, he you should be given credit for publicly players within the game know how good Peter Stastny was with the Quebec Nordiques. But um, I got a, I got a Peter Stastny Jersey for Christmas one year and uh, fast forward 20 plus years, my first roommate on the road. Yeah. So it was really cool to be <laughs> 10 years old and wearing a Peter Stastny Quebec Nordique number 26. And then I'm sitting in a hotel room with him as my roommate. And you didn't, um, you didn't wear the jersey, ago. did you? I'm sorry. You didn't wear the jersey on that night in the as a roommate. I don't think I spoke. I think I was just too afraid. Yeah. Yeah. I think I just lied in my bed. Whatever channel he wanted to watch. Actually, you know what I do remember. You bring it up, Franny, is that he's a very intelligent, intelligent man, and we didn't know the difference between Czech Republic and Slovakia. Then it was Czechoslovakia, and and at a young age, that's where the best pucks came from. Czechoslovakia. That's how we grew up. Every all the pucks said Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Those apparently were the best pucks. And um, he was the first one that, would, that educated us on that. That's two separate countries, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. We didn't know what Slovakia was. And he was telling us, you never called Peter Stasny a Czech. He was Slovakian. <laughs> and he, he got later on into politics and stuff like that. But uh, very intelligent, um, knowledgeable, besides being an one of the best hockey players of the yeah. generation and his family. And again, for what his brothers had to defect to come over to play in the National Hockey League was pretty impressive also. And did you used to go to the old Maple Leafs Garden, Jared? How, how cool was that? Because I know Scotiabank is, is nice and everything, but everyone talks about the old Maple Leaf Garden as being a, a kind of a, a cathedral of hockey. Yeah, it is. And I still drive by when we're in Toronto. I'm up in that area. I still will drive by because they still have the marquee out front. Uh, it's a grocery store now. Okay. But when you walk <laughs> in, it still has, you know where you are. You're, you're at Maple Leaf Gardens. They've kept some of the seeds and the, it just has a great feel to it. So um, one thing playing major junior over here in the Ontario Hockey League for Oshawa, the Toronto Marlboros had a team and they would, their home dates were two o'clock on a Saturday. So we would play them, get into the rink around 12, just as the visiting team was coming off the ice for pregame skates. So it was such a thrill to be 17, 18 years old coming into Maple Leaf Gardens, first of all, just to be in that building and then to watch an NHL team finish their pregame skate. And we would play right after them. And then the Leafs would play that night. So 
Um, no, it is amazing. It, it, you needed a roadmap to get to your seat. It was such a confusing <laughs> building. Uh, not like they're designed today, yeah. but um, it is special. And, and the biggest thing too, is there's such a buzz on the street because it is right downtown Toronto. So when you, you get your parking spot and you'd walk a few blocks or however, how far you had to walk, there was just a buzz on the street. You can just feel the excitement of you're going to the Maple Leaf Gardens, you're going to watch the Leafs and the marquee was very simple outside. It would just say versus Detroit Red Wings or Chicago Blackhawks or whoever. But, you know, to step into that building was, uh, was very special. Even to this day, like I said, it's a grocery store, but um, whenever in Toronto, we need something. I definitely always try to get by Maple Leaf Gardens. Yeah. Well, well, here's a couple of links into that. Um, so one of your early hockey heroes, did you know that Salomon played a game in Cardiff? I didn't know that. He did, yeah. Uh, so there was a uh, so there was a touring team that used to come over. They did it a couple of summers in a row. So it was NHL for Hope or something like that. It yeah, was yeah. a it was a charity, and uh, one of the years ca uh, came over. It was Salming. There was Bob Probert came over. So I got to play against him, which was amazing. I remember <laughs> yeah. I remember li lining up on a face off, and he was the left winger, I was the right winger. So that was amazing. Uh, there was Chris Nyland. There was so many of the tough guys came over, and they used to go on a Brandy, tour. You played with Glenn Anderson. I did play a game with Glenn Anderson. You too, assisted yeah. Glenn, didn't you? I did assist Glenn Anderson's goal in Cardiff. Yeah. You no know, way. A, that is a yeah. great story, Fred. That that's yeah. some heavy, heavy guys that came over, like some tough yeah. guys and some big names. Yeah, yeah. There was there was lots of big names. I mean, uh, there's plenty more that uh, that came over. So they used to go on a tour around Europe. So some guy, there was a Canadian guy that was playing over in France, and then he used to organize this tour, which was a you know, glorified golf trip or whatever, but they would yeah. stop off at you know, rinks around the UK and then other rinks in different countries and you know, play a game, raise some money for charity. And uh, Bobby Hull came over with them one year, and I remember taking him. Oh. Yeah, so he, he was there, and uh, after the game, we all um, we took the, the guys out. It was a Sunday night. And you'll become acquainted with uh, what's famous in Cardiff is Chippy Lane. So it's where everybody goes after the bars and it's full of, you know, chip shops and kebab shops and all the rest of it. And Bobby Hall was walking around there and it was quite full. It's always busy. And I think he was expecting people to come up to him like he would, like they would in, if he was in North America. And nobody knew who he was. It was just this old guy walking down the street and, you know, he was chatting to, to people and getting no kind of reaction. But he said to me, I want to try fish and chips. So I had to go in <laughs> and I had to buy him fish and chips. And uh, Bobby Hall tried fish and chips uh, that I bought him first time ever. That's good. And he drank the town dry, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all did, yeah. <laughs> in fact, I think in the documentary uh, that Knuckles Nylon is in, he tells like a story about when he falls off the wagon and he has a fight with a teammate and that's when he had to get sober and stuff like yeah. that. And that was on that tour that he'd been on. Oh, really? Because they'd been, yeah, they'd been away two or three weeks golfing and drinking every day. And I guess things got ugly in one of the days. And, uh, and that was a, that was a big warning sign for him. I, I had a Bobby Hall story. When I, I traded the Belleville Bulls my last year and the owner, uh, amazing man named uh, Dr. Vaughn, Dr. Robert Vaughn, who recently passed away just over a year ago. He owned the team and very proud of Belleville, Ontario and, and the organization. That's where Bobby Hall's from. So I was living with him and two other guys in the team. 
and I uh, came home for practice and he said, uh, hey, we have a special guest coming for dinner tonight, Bobby Hall. It's like, holy smokes, <laughs> I'm going to have dinner at his home with Bobby Hall. So Lois, his wife, had made uh, chicken with the bone in and put these bowls in the middle of the, the long table. And so you'd eat your chicken and you'd put your bones in the, in the bowl. So I'm sitting across from one of my teammates, and every time we dropped the bone in the bowl, Bobby would reach over, grab it, and kind of finish it off for us. <laughs> and it was like, okay, that's a little disgusting, first of all. And it would, so we kept doing it and watching him, but realized he was a farmer from Belleville. Like he raised uh, bulls and stuff and, and, and cows. And he just, he, even though he played in the NHL and all the success, he was still just a, a farmer. And I remember sitting there watching this guy. We, 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 could, we couldn't stop laughing because every time we dropped a bone in the bowl, he would clean it up for us. And <laughs> he wasn't wasting anything. No, 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 no not, not, not Bobby Hall. Did he finish his fish and chips, Ronnie? Um, yeah, I think, I think he enjoyed it. Yeah. He probably <laughs> finished yours, Franny. <laughs> so that's, oh, that's good. <laughs> so that's, uh, you know, the, the, the growing up around hockey night in Canada, the love for hockey. When you start your journey, Jared, you're with the Oshawa generals in the, in the Ontario hockey league. And, uh, Really, you seem to take to the OHL like a, a duck to water and uh, have a very good uh, first season. What were your early impressions uh, of the standard of the OHL and, and what did you uh, make of how you started? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting you, you, you put it that way because I can tell you it was a struggle from right from the beginning till about Christmas time. And I, and I, I tell this to young guys too, is that... Um, you know, I, I believe when I was drafted, I was probably only about 155 pounds, you know, 160 pounds tops and uh, went to Oshawa and, and it was hard. It was extremely hard um, just to survive, you know, and uh, I think I had two goals at Christmas and it, it just progressively gets worse. It doesn't really get better sometimes because you just you have nothing to draw from experience wise or um you're at another level here. These guys are good. They're NHL draft picks. They're big. They're strong. And I remember it wasn't until uh, they used to have a thing called the SO Cup in Quebec where they, where they picked the top 17-year-olds from or 16-year-olds from uh, the Maritimes, Quebec, Ontario, and the West. And then Russians would come over, Team Russia, Team Sweden. And we all met in Quebec for a tournament. And it was the first time I played against my peers in a while. And that tournament had Matt Sundin for Sweden. It had Pavel Bure, uh, Slava Kozlov for Russia. The uh, tournament was amazing. But I was able to get my confidence back because now I'm playing against guys my size. I'm playing. I can have some, some success. And when I came back to Oshawa after that two-week tournament, I was a different player. You know, I was back to who I was when they drafted me and, and ended up finishing the season strong and was able to put up points to have a good first season, but the God's honest truth on that. The first part was the first three, four months were hard. Your first time away from home, you know, living with a billet family and eating differently and different habits, freedom, freedom is uh, a dangerous <laughs> thing uh, at 16. Um, you know, so it, it was a challenge. And, and I was fortunate that when I coached the Gulf storm, 
um, you know, I could re- I could relate to some of these players that we had that that were struggling, and you know, old school mentalities a little bit about you know, suck it up, you know, you have to perform, you know, be a man type attitude, and and you know, coaching Guelph and seeing some of these sixteen year olds that were struggling, they were having some tough weeks or tough weekends and tough stretches, so. I was, it was great to draw off my experience of knowing that it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to start, uh, found a way, and, you know, end up being a good first season moving into my draft year. So, uh, but that, that league's a tough, tough league, the Ontario Hockey League at that age. You're, you're 16 years old. Most kids are just trying to survive um, shift by shift. And, and a few excel at young ages and, and, and stuff, but um, – I was fortunate that I got to play in that SO Cup, the tournament in Quebec, and then come back with a full boat of confidence and finish off the year strong. What, what kind of player were you? Well, um, I wasn't overly physical. Um, I would have to say I was more on the offensive side of the puck. So I would say my greatest strengths were my skating and my hockey sense. Um, and that's what I relied on most, uh, most times, even into my pro career and stuff is just, you know, the, the hockey, sense, hockey sense aspect of it, but I could also skate. Um, I, I played center my whole life after my first, I told you guys the first year of the goalie. So understanding that position, which is can be very difficult. You, you, you can go to the wing, but a lot of guys can't come play center. It's, it's a whole different thing. And I can relate to baseball over here in America, uh, being a catcher. You know, you just can't become a catcher. You have to develop that. You have to know the position and stuff. So, um, you know, I, that, that, those were my biggest strengths, hockey sense and skating. I had really good skills and stuff. So I like to distribute the puck more than shooting it. Um, it wasn't until I got mid through my pro career, I had to change my game a little bit to be more responsible defensively. Because what happens with young guys is everybody thinks they're offensive. Everybody thinks they're sitting product. Everybody's going to score. And, you know, well, unfortunately on a team, there's only six forwards that actually are paid to do that. The other ones are either paid to kill the clock, kill a penalty, block a shot, get a puck out, get a puck in. And I started realizing mid 25, 26, I wasn't getting called up to the NHL anymore. Um, Try to change my game to become more of a responsible guy that can kill penalties and be relied on winning faceoffs. You know, you can win faceoffs, you can make a career out of it, you know. So there's aspects of my game I had to change moving forward through my pro career. Saying, saying that you weren't, uh, you know, you're more a disher than a scorer, that next year in, uh, in Oshawa, you, you put up 50 goals and the team went on to win the Memorial Cup. That's got to be pretty special, special as a junior. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's something you talk about, but there's 64 teams across Canada and it's such a tough trophy to win uh, with all the different leagues and, um, and, and we, we knew we were good. We had a really good team. We were, uh, probably the best team in Ontario. There's teams out West. Um, and then we made a trade for some guy named Eric Lindros. <laughs> I was going to ask you about him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't, Hey, you can't talk about winning World Cup without talking about Eric Lindros, right? Yeah. On the team. So, uh, but, but we were good. And then they, they changed the rules because Lindros was the first overall pick and would not go to the Sioux St. Marie Greyhound. So, um, and the league had a rule. You can't trade your first round pick. Well, they're like, we have to get this kid in the league. Like he's gotta be he's dominant. And so they changed the rules and we end up trading for him. So 
Um, it was quite a spectacle. I couldn't imagine with today's social media. Back then, we had two TV stations across Ontario and Canada, TSN and CTV, and, you know, the Toronto Star and different outlets. But um, it, it was crazy. We sold out. Every rink we went to was sold out. And um, you know, it was a lot of fun. And then to, you know, culminate with just winning a championship was uh, was crazy, especially where it was played. It was played in Hamilton, Ontario, where they had built Cobb's Coliseum in the early, geez, or the late 80s, hoping for an NHL team. So they had a 17,000-seat arena that we played at for the final against Kitchener, which was equal distance Hamilton as Kitchener and Oshawa. So the crowd was literally split down the middle of, you know, 8,000 plus for Oshawa, 8,000 plus for Kitchener. So it was a very unique game to play in. And, and, and thankfully in double overtime, we won it. How good was he, Jared? How, how, because, and, and he's in the hall of fame. He was great, but if, if the game was, was played and refereed like it is now, would, would Eric Lindros be thought of as even greater, having not received maybe the headshots and that sort of thing? How, how, how good was he? He was that good. He was. It, it, and I think the rules today would have even helped him more because you couldn't hold him up. Now, you know, he's a freight train going in on a four check to get the puck. Um, he gets a lot of criticism here. Uh there's a lot of, you know, when you're 16 years old and you're, no one's ever done that, get drafted in the OHL and said, I'm not going there. Like it was unheard of. Like yeah. That was just so disrespectful to the league, to the game of hockey, to everything. And then to do it again yeah. in the National Hockey League, say, I'm not going to Quebec. He was already a villain um, in, in a lot of circles in hockey. Um, his style of play, he, he, were, he was mean. Like he, he was physical, but he was also mean. Um, he punished people. Um, he was that good. He was, I, I truly believe he's a Hall of Famer. Um, I think he's earned it. He was the most dominant hockey player for probably a year and a half, two years, maybe a little bit longer at a certain time. And, and you could say, well, that's not that long, but very few people dominate the game for any period of time. You know, there's the Gretzky's and even Messier and Crosby's done it and certain guys, but Eric Lindros was all of that. Unfortunately for him, the concussions, some off ice, just a disgruntled uh, type player moved from team to team by the end, just retiring. Um, I, I think of when I think of Eric Lindros, I think of Eric Lindros with the Philadelphia Flyers as one of the dominant players in the National Hockey League. That's a good question because you, you, you'll get all kinds of different answers. Yeah. You'll get answers here in Ontario where he's from. Um, I've got close friends that don't think he's a Hall of Famer at all, you know, or, or don't think he was in consideration for it. Um, you can dominate your sport yeah. for a, a length of time. I think you're a pretty special player. And Lindros was the most dominant player in the league for, for a few years. I guess it's a shame that when he eventually came to the Leafs, he was kind of a shadow of his former self. Yeah, it, it, it was. It, it, sometimes it gets a little sad because I just don't think that was the Lindros we, you know, we we, we watched or played with, and, and it was different. It was a different Eric Lindros with the concussions and, um, you know, the, the the public battle with Bobby Clark in Philadelphia. Uh, there's so much more attached to Lindros. And, and, and some was brought on by himself, absolutely. Uh, some was brought on by the way he played the game. Um, 
you know, so I, I'll be, I'll tell you, I was really happy when Philly had an outdoor game, they brought him back and Lindros played for Flyers because he's a Philadelphia Flyer. I, I believe like when you think of Eric Lindros, besides Oshawa Generals, his amateur team, uh, Eric Lindros is a Philadelphia Flyer and number in the Raptors, Hall of Famer, absolutely. And uh, anyone that wins a championship always tells you, you know, you can have good teammates and good friends, but you'll never have the bond that you've got with, with guys that win, you win championships with. So is uh, Lindros on your speed dial on your mobile? No, he's not. <laughs> uh, hey, and I'll tell you guys, this is a funny story. It, 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 you just uh, made me think about this. So when we were, uh, so they changed the rules in the OHL and said that you could trade your first round pick. So, and, and then this just plays more into what I've just talked about, Lindros. He told the league he'd only go to five teams. So never mind that he already said he's not going to the Sioux Greyhounds. After they changed the rules, he said, here's my list of five teams that I'll go to because they had to be around the Toronto area. So, so yeah, there are some things attached to his family and different things that that was not normal then. Like you didn't see people dictate to a league or dictate to people in power the way the Lindrosses were. They were dictating on what's best for their son. So we were on that list of five teams that he would come play for. And we had a team meeting and, and half the guys didn't want him. They're like, we don't need him. And because we're already the best team in Ontario, he's going to break up the chemistry. And I remember being the most vocal one saying, we need this guy. We, if this kid is half as good as we, we hear he is, he's only going to help us and we'll have a better team against the team, we'll have a better chance against teams out West. We need Eric Lindros. And, uh, Eric and I see here, here's what happens is Ontario hockey league for 17, 18, 19 year olds have massive egos. And I had one too. You know, you're, you've been told how great you are since you've been little, you, you, you know, I was a first round pick Oshawa. Um, you know, now we get Lindros, the attention folks uh, goes to Lindros, how great he is. And as a young kid, you don't have the tools to deal with this. So I resented Eric Lindros after, even after winning the Memorial cup, we had, a, we, it was amazing. The next year we came back, uh, I ended up going to Belleville because I asked to be traded. And in looking back, it was the right thing. I'm not a winger. I only played center. Um, Lindros needed someone to play with. So we ended up making a trade with Belleville to bring in a guy that he could, they could complement each other. But um, it, it, it's just funny looking back at how, at those ages, how your, your, your ego gets so in the way of, of certain things. And you, there's such an opportunity to have success again. You know, we could have gone back to another Memorial Cup and, yeah. and stuff, but, um, you know, I didn't have the equipment or the tools to, to deal with um, someone taking, taking my spotlight now, which, you know, this guy is going to be a, is a future hall of famer. Yeah. You know, put your ego aside, let's get along <laughs> together. Let's work together. But you don't, you don't have the equipment uh, to do that. And you're not raised that way because um, the positives of growing up in this area are, are, are very, very good. But there's also such a competitive nature here to get to the NHL. And he's not that good. He's good. Yeah. He's not as good as him. You're better than him. You know, and, and that's in everything. I, I'm sure football across the UK, mm-hmm. or, uh, whatever it is, but um, no, so I don't have him on speed dial, but if I saw him today, I would go up and give him a big hug. That's for sure. 
And and that year as well, the Memorial Cup year, that was that your draft year to the NHL? No, I was already drafted the year already prior drafted. to New Jersey. But but what was very important, though, Freddie, is that um, that was the year to sign my entry level contract. So the Memorial Cup really helped in my, you know, I'm assuming I would have got a contract without winning the Memorial Cup, but playing in the Memorial Cup, winning the Memorial Cup, having a good tournament. Uh, accelerated my signing with the New Jersey Devils to an entry-level contract. Yeah. And tell us a bit about the, the draft. You, you went second round. Um, was it yeah. Sundin? Sundin was the first pick that year? Matt yep. Sundin was first overall. So this is a funny story. We'll talk about – geez, I feel like I'm, 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 I'm acting like a sports psychologist right now. We all need help. Really not. But, <laughs> My draft day, 1989, um, I went to Detroit Red Wings on a visit, uh, met with Jimmy Davilano and their whole brass and, uh, you know, three days there, showed me around. And then the day before the draft, I was supposed to have one more meeting with them and they canceled it. And my agent called me and said, um, you don't have to go to that meeting. He said, uh, congratulations, you're going to Detroit 11th overall tomorrow. So that's what I went to bed on. I went to yeah. sleep on back then the draft was all on Saturday, all 12 rounds were just straight Saturday. So Friday night, I was informed by the Detroit Red Wings that I would be uh, being selected by them 11th overall. Central scouting had me at 13. So I get up the next day, it's 1989, the wall's kind of coming down in, in, in Europe. Uh, this guy named Bobby Holik yeah. apparently got out of Czechoslovakia. Um, they've been trying to get this guy out for years. Somebody may draft him, and sure enough, Hartford Whalers take Bobby Holik. That pushes some guys. The 11th pick comes up to Detroit. Mike Sillinger is still available. So Detroit takes him. I slide to 26. So as much as being drafted 26th overall was such a great day, it was such a disappointing day because, as you yeah. pointed out, Franny, I was a second round pick. Yeah. You know, I wanted and to be and then you had, first yeah, you round had pick. Every, everything is saying you go in first round. Yeah. 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 And the reason I know this is one of the classiest things I've seen in my 30 years in, in hockey. So it, it, disappointing. I went 26th overall, slid out of the first round. Um, come back to Niagara Falls, Monday morning, I get a phone call. It's Jimmy Devilano, general manager of Detroit Red Wings. And he apologized to me. He said, I just want to apologize because I know what we told your agent. Um, and let me explain. So I know this in detail because Jimmy Devilano explained in detail what happened and, and why guys slid and then to how the whole draft unfolded that day. So for Jimmy Devilano to call me up and um, explain it to me was pretty cool. But looking back at that 89 draft, though, Nick Lidstrom, Sergei Fedorov, Slava Kozlov, um, I think they took uh, Larry Onov in that draft. Like that 89 draft built the Detroit Red Wing dynasty for 20 years. You know, they've already had Iserman uh, from the 84 draft, but it was the 89 draft that really defined the Detroit Red Wings for the next 20 years. It was a strong draft year, Jared. I think Adam Foote went about three places ahead of you. So that was a, a, a strong draft year. And what I wanted to ask you, only because I'm a huge Brian Berg fan, and he always he always tells these stories, 
What are those meetings like when you're a draftee going in with the GMs? Because he, he tells the Thomas Vanek story where Vanek went in, I think, to Vancouver and, and wasn't answering the questions at all and, and basically said, well, I'm, I'm, I won't go this low in the draft, so it's no point answering the question. And Brian Burke said, well, I'll trade up for you if I like you. And right now I don't like you, which I always think is a great <laughs> Brian Burke story. What are those meetings like? They're very similar to that. Um, every team's <laughs> different. Um, I've always found it's an unfair situation to put a 17-year-old turning 18-year-old into a room with 12 to 15 grown-ass men that have all the answers and questions and everything. It's very intimidating. So what's tr for my draft, it was um, some teams were tougher. Some teams would try to catch, uh, like, in a seeing if you have confidence and if you could come in with that, exude that. It was good. Some teams are very casual. Some had questionnaires. Um, I remember there's a guy, Jack Button, Craig Button, uh, dad. Craig Button does a lot of hockey over here on TSN. Mm -hmm. There's a story of a player that had a bit of an attitude problem. And when uh, Jack Button interviewed him, he said, um, I like the way you play. I like how you do a lot of good things. But uh, what I understand is you got a bit of an attitude problem. And he looked back at Jack Button and said, well, you got a bit of a weight problem. No one's saying anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> like, so yeah. you get a lot of stuff. JT Miller, I heard this one story that they're like, hey, I heard you like to smoke smoke weed. Yeah, yeah only on like weekends though. <laughs> Some guys just, so the difference today is now is they're so prepared. So these guys have gone to some coaching. They've gone to uh, different things. So uh, another guy, uh, Burke, uh, drafted me in New Jersey, Timmy Burke. He's with the San Jose Sharks. So these guys come in and they're prepared. They know exactly. They've already gone through the what they want to say and portray to the teams. So Timmy Burke for the San Jose Sharks, first question, he says, I'm going to ask you one question right now. If it's – Five o'clock in Toronto, what time is it in Newfoundland? And most guys have no clue what time it is in Newfoundland because Newfoundland has a half hour time change. Okay. So okay. we have the East Coast time yeah. here, Toronto, yeah. New York, Miami. And then there's an Atlantic time zone, which yeah. is St. Yeah. John, New Brunswick, Fredericton, New Brunswick. And then there's a half hour time zone in Newfoundland. <laughs> so it's an hour and a half difference. Okay. So nobody knows that, though, unless you've actually spent time there. So what he tries to do is throw them off. So they're, they're scripted. They come in. They look good. They, they, and now he's trying to throw them off the script. So I always ask guys what time it is in Newfoundland. <laughs> it's rocking trauma. So <laughs> stuff like that. It's gotten so much more with uh, sports psychologists, too. Yeah. Um, everybody's bringing in different people to analyze these young men. To, to ask some different questions to kind of see if there's some patterns to their behavior or patterns to their lifestyle. And, and they, they follow up like the, the craziest things is social media. Like if you're 17, 18 year old, get rid of everything because every NHL scout, every NHL team is getting on your social media to see what you are doing, you know? So uh, it's, a, it's a different process now to back then. Um, there were teams that barely did anything then. They liked as a player that was good enough for them, you know, but it's changed now.
you mentioned about psychology there and uh one of the questions i had for you you you, you mentioned again about being traded to belleville uh so one of your teammates then is uh the little brother of uh one of your heroes wayne gretzky so you played with brent gretzky yeah what what was how did brent sort of cope with living in his brother's shadow and the expectations and everything. That must have been so tough. I got him on speed dial for any. Oh, yeah? There Mm -hmm. we go. Um, So we're calling him from the bar, by the way, when you (laughs) (laughs) retire. So I can't imagine what him and Keith had to go through growing up. Because there's an age gap between Wayne and Brent. I, I believe it's 10 years. So... Wayne's already on doing amazing things while Brent's just coming up through minor hockey ranks. And Brent looks like him, plays like him, skates like him, sees the ice like him, but he's just not Wayne Gretzky. He's Brent Gretzky. And still very good. Uh, I My time spent with Brent Gretzky at the back of the bus sharing Gretzky family stories is fascinating. Absolutely. And the way he handled it, like every rink we went to, Somebody would have something to say to him, a player, a fan, somebody, you're not your brother, you know, just, it it was nonstop. And he handled it in stride. And the best story I could tell you about this is that here in Canada, our Royal family is the Gretzkys. Okay. That's our Royal family. (laughs) That is the, you know, that's the hierarchy. That's the, that, that is our, he goes, we are trailer park. That's what we are. He goes, everybody thinks we are this royal family of Canada. He goes, we are white trash trailer park people. But, you know, we're just put on this pedestal. He said that his sister was getting married in Brantford, Ontario. And um, so all the brothers, they have another brother, Glenn, that never played. So Glenn, Keith, Brent, and Wayne are going to the Brantford Country Club to play. And sure enough, I guess in Wayne style, Right before they're about to tee off, they get a call in the clubhouse saying Wayne can't make it, but you know, help yourself to anything in the clubhouse. And so Keith's grabbing like a new set, new driver, five new shirts, and everything's on Wayne's tab and everything. They go out and play. Well, they get into a fight on 17. It carries over to up to 18 fairway. They're in full-blown fisticuffs, Keith and Brent on 18. <laughs> Remember the day before their sister's wedding, and the people are going, "Those are the Gretzkys," <laughs> and they're sitting there just chucking them on eighteen <laughs> after a round of golf. Like that's right. Um, yeah, that, he, he Brent Gretzky should write a book about just. I can't imagine what he, the daily stuff he had to go through, and his dad's even more popular. Walter is an absolute yeah. legend everywhere here. And, Signs autographs. He walks into a rink. It's like the rink stopped. There's Walter Gretzky. The majority of dads want to be, be, you know, for their kids, you know, that, 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 that figure. So um, phenomenal kid. He's a police officer now in Brantford, Ontario, uh, doing very well. Um, But yeah, he's, uh, he, he was a good player. He was a really, really good player. He just, if he had a different name on the back, he may have played longer, would have played at a higher level than he did. Franny, yeah. don't forget we actually had Keith play up in there. We did, so, yeah. And um, so imagine him in Murrayfield, Durham, yeah. going those places. I remember the, the, the grief he used to get, um, scoring yeah. six, seven points a night and going 
and still being slated as as one of the worst imports. You did apologise to him afterwards, though. So. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he went through quite a bit in the, the UK for the short um, spell he was here and had to deal with that. Isn't that interesting? Like, you think he, he, he may be thinking in his mind he was getting away. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, getting away, let's go to the UK, and it doesn't matter. Like, you just can't hide. You're, you're, your name's Gretzky in hockey, and, you know, it doesn't matter where you go. You know, that's the standard. And I don't think it. I don't think it helped that Air were playing, if I remember, in black LA and silver Kings. shirts, no. like LA yep. Kings colors. So, <laughs> and it's just when, <laughs> when Wayne had gone to LA, and then uh, I mean, he didn't play uh, ninety nine. I think he wore twenty, but uh, yeah, he, he wore the black and silver LA exactly the, whole, the same the, uniform. The, the I don't score VM. Yeah, they yeah. skate the same. They look the same. They, they got the Gretzky the nose. They they they're Gretzkys. You yeah. know, so yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's got to be tough. And, and, yeah. and but, but again, Brent's doing great. Yeah, and that and that year as well was uh, was special for you again with your first NHL game for New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, that was that was really really something because I went to training camp, did well. They kept me there for the first game of the year. I was healthy scratch, and then we went to Pittsburgh. And uh, I was in the lineup and uh, I, I still remember stepping on the ice for that first shift. Like just, I can't believe I played a shift in the national hockey league. So <clears throat> about my third shift, I get a pass from Slava Fatisa. Mm -hmm. uh, he had just signed uh, from, uh, you know, yeah. uh, Red Army. Uh, he came over and Slava hits me up the center pass I spring a guy for breakaway I get an assist on like my third shift I'm like oh man this is unbelievable like this is easy you know and um but then I forgot Paul Coffey and Mary Lemieux and different guys around the other team and uh I think we end up losing like 7-3 but uh, <laughs> that, that experience alone your first NHL game is uh, is pretty pretty special especially at the igloo against those guys and it was uh it, it was amazing to have that, to get that. And, you know, you want to play a thousand games. You want to play. And I remember at that moment going like, I got here. You know, you played that one game, the National Hockey League. Like it's, you know, it's never enough. But at that moment in time, you're just so excited that you finally got to that point in your life that you've been dreaming about your whole life. It is pretty special. And so you're a point, you're you're a point to game that time. What's that? Sorry, I, Franny, I was just asking, who were the guys in that locker room? Because I, I had a quick look, and I think one of my favorite NHL players, was, was Brendan Shanahan there at the time you uh, played for the Devils, and guys like Ken Danico and people like that? Dano was there. Dano was, Dano was there. I got a story for Dano, but I can't remember if Shanny was still there yet. Or I think he was, and then he got traded to St. Louis yeah. next year. But like, like Claude Lemieux was in there, Stefan Richet, um, Bruce Driver, uh, Chris Terreri, Craig Billington. But Kenny Danico is one of the funniest human beings <laughs> I've ever been around in my life. He, he's a big guy. Like his head's yeah. big. His hands are big. He's a <laughs> barrel-chested guy. Just a big, meaty man. And he played. You guys know how he played. He played yeah. hard at everything he did. He wasn't overly skilled. But he used to come off the ice after like the first period. He'd come in take his helmet off and go, 
God, I just wish one time you guys could feel what I feel on the ice. Like, what's that? Knowing you're the strongest human being out there. It is such a... <laughs> I feel so good. Oh, I just wish for one shift you guys could feel what I feel. <laughs> That's how Gaz feels on this podcast. <laughs> Uh, he's great. I, and I, uh, when I watch Devils games, I make sure I put their broadcast on because yeah. I want to listen to the panel because he's got great insight. And he has. He battled. He battled off ice demons. He he, yeah. he wasn't the best player, but man, he showed up every game and won some cups. And you know, I don't think anybody represents the Devils more than than Kenny Danico for longevity and what he brought to that organization. So I, I'm, you'll find out, Jared, I'm stuck in the past. The other three guys, they're, they're, they're in the present. I'm stuck in the past, and I love the old names. Did you score your first NHL goal against Mike Richter? Yes, I did. Yeah, Madison Square Garden. And I'll tell you who else was on the ice. I always laugh when guys go like, you know, how many NHL goals you scored? And then some guys I get. They played so long, they might not yeah. know. But if you, if you played 100 games, I think you're going to remember how many you scored. You remember, I remember every one. I remember who was in net. I remember all of it, because, you know. And uh, uh, Messier, Adam Graves, Tony wow. Amante, Brian wow. Leach, Jeff Bukaboom, and wow. Mike Richter in net. Wow. And it was wow. a game winner. Yeah. And, and the best is when you go to those markets, so you're playing. And the, when I was in New Jersey, the Devils weren't the Devils. Like, they were still just coming up. Like, you know, they weren't a – one of the better teams. It was, it was a building. Lou Lamorell was still building that organization. And, but you go to New York, New York, you're at Madison Square Garden, you score the game winner. And you don't know, you don't know what happens after that. You come in the locker room, the doors open up to the media and you got a scrum wow, of wow. the New York times, the New York post, the New Jersey star ledger. You got cameras, you got, no one prepares you for this and you're not prepared <laughs> for it. And you're sitting there just, you don't even know what you're saying. You're just talking and sitting at Madison Square Garden. And the, the coolest thing is at Madison Square Garden, when you left the locker room, there was a long hallway you had to go down. And it was all the mega stars that have played there. So you got Springsteen, yeah. Elton John, you got you know, Freddie Mercury, you got all these huge, huge mm -hmm. celebrities and entertainers that you walk down a hallway that, you know, Billy Joel sold out. 12 consecutive nights at Madison Square Garden. You're like, you're just like, man, this is the entertainment capital of the world. Like this is, this is real. This is real life going on right now. So you get that you get spirit, that. don't you? It's just like where the old rugby said, you, you're not there for the events, but you can feel that spirit, the history the building has. And if you go and see from a new oh, building. How's so emotionally froze? <laughs> I always get emotionally we need frozen. A new producer. Yeah. <laughs> Write a note how Gene to edit this bit out. Yeah. It's happened there for us here in, in Ontario. From every major event goes through Maple Leaf Gardens, every major event goes through Madison Square Garden. Um, you know, so you, you do feel that you feel this importance to it. Uh, the Montreal Forum has a whole different feel of, you know, and the, the, the biggest thing was Wayne Gretzky always sat Montreal Forum in this one stall with no one around hockey. So the, the most veteran guy got that stall. So when you came in the morning for pregame skate, you want to know who got the, 
Gretzky stall at Montreal four. I mean, depending on what team you're on, that guy got it as your veteran guy or as your captain and stuff. So it's pretty cool. Um, the little, the little intricacies, like when I played for Chicago Blackhawks, there was guys that were like 80 years old doing laundry there. They've been doing the laundry there for 60 years. You know, like they, 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 there's just a staff of these guys that have been part of their history and fabric for so long. You just got to kind of respect what they've done and what they've seen and what they know. And it makes you feel like, man, I'm just a little speck on this whole grand scheme of what's gone on in Chicago or Toronto or wherever it may be, New York. I just wanted to take back to that. When you played your first game, you get an assist in your first game, you're a point a game in the NHL. You know, you've got to be right up there. Uh, and what you talked about before about when Lindros came in, there was maybe a little bump of the ego. And as a, as a young guy, it's tough to handle. So you'd have been, what, 20 when you've played that game? 19? 19. So were, you, were you disappointed then not to get any further games that year in the NHL? No. Um, no, because getting that game was important. But there's also a knowing, internal knowing that, I got some work to do. You know, as much as third shift in, you get an assist, and you're like, who? The, the National Hockey League has an ability to bring you in, and you see it a lot. You see guys, we, we could talk about probably dozens of players, you're like, what happened to him? Man, he came in, his first 20 games were, he was almost a point a game, and then he was in the minors, and then he was out of hockey. Like, that league has an ability to slap you around. like I'm overwhelmed like it's 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 too much like the speed of the game the physicality of the game the you know all that stuff so at that time when we got back I was told I was going back to junior I remember this vividly as being a bit of a relief of like oh I can breathe now you know what I mean because you're just every day you're just hanging on uh, pins and needles and going back to your peers and your your peer group and where you know you're going to have success and uh, it, it was a bit of a relief I'm glad I got the game in I'm glad I got that experience um, and I'll be better off for it the following year. you mentioned the uh, relief going back to, to, to something you knew so how did you feel the next year going into New Jersey knowing there's no real safety net you, you kind of have to go all out for, the, for this next year yeah, um, what I can say about that is the pressure you put on yourself. Like, uh, I remember me coming in now, 19 turning 20. I played a game. I'm one of the, their, their top prospects. Um, the pressure you put on yourself to make the team. I remember that. I remember just really not enjoying the moment because I was too focused on, I have to make this team, I have to make this team. Uh, I'm going to let myself down. I'm going to let my family down, my friends. And sure enough, I get sent down to Utica and it was just devastating because I, everybody sees themselves as I saw myself never playing in the minors type guy. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to get drafted. I'm going to play. I'm going to play for 20 years for the New Jersey Devils, all those great things that you envision. 
so it, it was an extreme disappointment going to the minors um, the first time uh, coming out of training camp that year. Because like, like you said, there's no junior to fall back on. You're a pro now. You know, you're getting paid to do this. And if you're not going to get paid in New Jersey, you're going to get paid in Utica, New York, and you have to perform. So um, it, it's funny in hockey, the, the innocence that leaves. Like that, that first training camp after I got drafted, you don't know what to expect. You have no idea. Like this is something so different. And so you don't, you don't have games in your head. You just show up and you play and man, you have fun. It's great. And then you internalize these ex expectations and these demands on yourself. It wasn't fun. I remember that year being 20 turning pro because I, I had so much pressure. I put on myself to make that team. If I don't make that team, it's a failure. So, it, and then it takes you time to get out of that while you're now in Utica or in the American Hockey League, working your way to get out of it. And then finally I got called back up in January and played a string of games. And it, it, it's a roller coaster. It, it really is of, of, of emotions and stuff, but uh, um, it, 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 it's a grind. And I, I always say like a, a, a the levels of that from the Ontario Hockey League as a coach. I know we're getting, we're not getting the coaching aspect of this, but um, you know the lessons I could teach kids in Guelph to the lessons I could teach kids in the American Hockey League. Well, it's not the end of the world. You got sent down. This is the best thing for you is to play in the American Hockey League for 20 games, 20 straight games. Don't worry about getting called up. Just play, enjoy the moment, and good things will come out of it. So, um, but it, it is a, it is a roller coaster for emotions. I'm probably jumping ahead, so Gazel Franny will pull me back, Jared. But that must have been amplified again with the expansion draft at Anaheim, because it must be a double-edged sword. You kind of you're not being protected, so that's going to be a kick in the guts. But you get drafted by another NHL team. You're also going into Anaheim, which must have been a, a fun place to be with the whole Disney thing. So that that must have been just a a real mixture of emotion. It, it was wild, and I'll, I'll tell you, it was a. It, it, one of the greatest days of my life was, uh, so now we're talking no cell phones, right? We're, we're talking, my agent called me and he said, make sure you're available. I, I, I don't remember what day the draft was on, but um, he said, you know, there's a good chance you might go, uh, you know, make sure you're available. I said, well, I'm going to New Jersey. Bruce Springsteen was playing a benefit concert at the Brendan Byrne Meadowlands Arena. Yeah. So, we drove down um, thinking we get scalper tickets, like four, four buddies. We walked down the parking lot, couldn't get tickets. I find a pay phone, call my agent, nothing yet, nothing yet. We can't get tickets. We drove all this way, but about a six hour drive for us. And uh, so I said, we gotta do something. It's getting close to, you know, late afternoon. So I found a security guard that I remember me that played for the devils. He let me into the office. And the, the receptionist was standing there and she saw me and her face dropped. And she's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, uh, I came to the show. She's like, well, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to tell you, but you just got selected by the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. This is great. And then I said, well, I got one other problem. I said, we don't have tickets. <laughs> and she was like, Oh, you don't need tickets. Come right this way. Got all my buddies, walked us right up on the concourse, put us into a suite. And I watched Bruce Springsteen play a benefit concert. First time he brought the E Street band back. 
And all I kept thinking about was I'm going to be an Anaheim mighty, mighty duck. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was so cool. But again, there too, you know, you, you, you go down there and it was exciting. Believe me, it was like, we were like rock stars down there because it was just so new to um, Southern California in the sense of Anaheim getting a, getting a, a pro sports team and the fans. And um, it, it, it was great. The merchandise was everywhere. Like you couldn't go anywhere without seeing mighty duck stuff and people wanting something from you, whether an autograph or buy you dinner or something. It was just a very exciting time um, to be in the national hockey. This is 1993. So it, it, it was great. It was so much fun. Yeah. The, the only point I was going to touch on before we got to, to Anaheim was um, around about this time is, is sort of the emergence of the Russians coming into the NHL and, you know, the popularity of those guys and a lot, a lot of them doing well. And I think on your team, I got down, you had Fetisov, uh, Alexandra Simak, um, Valerie Zelopukin, all, all those guys that are doing well. Did, did that make it tougher for you as a North American guy who was kind of up and down between the NHL and the AHL to, to stick around, you know, for, for more games in the, in the NHL? Uh, yes and no, because what was presented to us young guys at 17, 18 was that this is the best time for you guys. Because, you know, we're talking going from an original six in 1967 to 12 to 21. And there's already talks of this expansion back in the late 80s, early 90s, before Tampa and Ottawa had a team. And there's going to be so many NHL jobs available. Well, then the wall falls and, and the world changes for the better. And now all these Russians come over. So there was resentment um, uh, on that side. Like, you know, Alexander's, uh, sorry, uh, Valerie Zelopukin, great, great guy, deserved everything he got. But, the, you know, him coming in where I'm like, hey, I'm trying to make this team and he makes the team. You know, so there's, there's, there, there, was, there was an era there that, that the Russians weren't accepted in that sense, because, uh, you know, they were so unknown. A lot of NHL teams were just taking Russians in and giving them a chance. So, um, there, so as much as the game opened up and the, there was more opportunity, we added a whole nother level of players that could play in the National Hockey League. Yep. You know, and Alexander Simak was a star for Red Army in those 87 Canada Cups and, um, you know, really good player. Now you got Kazatonov on your team. You got Fakisov on your team. Um, it was wild. It, it, and you know what? I mean, I, I, I'm 20 years old. I'm 21 years old at the time. And I knew who those guys were. I just love going back and like the, the one, the, the Russian five in Detroit, forgetting what those guys had to go through. And I got to share a locker room with Petisov and some of these amazing hockey players and, and guys that have a life of experience living in Moscow and making the trek over seized the national hockey league and the pressures they were under. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a wild time through expansion and then the world opening up. It was, it was really wild. It was, it was, it was fascinating. It was, can I just ask on for T-Stop? Cause I love the Russian five, by the way, he, when he came over, he was about 32, 33. Anyway, how could it be? Could he have been? Cause I remember watching him in Calgary in 88 in the winter Olympics. And he was superb captain in that team. But when he came over, he technically he was past his prime, and yet he went on to win Stanley Cups with Detroit. He he, he was something else. 
Slava was, and he's a guy, he walks in a room and he just commands your respect. You know, he's a big guy and the way he carried himself, like he was almost like he was a diplomat. Like he just carried weight with him wherever he went, like when he walked in the room, whatever he did, like he just had a, a weight to him of somebody very important. Um, and he was the leader of those guys. He was the leader of the Red Army. You know, with Larionov and Makarov and Krutov, Kazatonov, Slava was the leader of those guys. And he was the one that came over. Yeah. So, I, and you probably know this, is that the relationship between Kazatonov and Kutisov, they were best friends since the childhood. Slava was out, um, you know, he was against the, the, the treatment and how the Red Army was doing things, especially Tikhanov. Uh, Kazatonov stayed loyal to Tikhanov, Slava left, and then New Jersey brings over. They wouldn't speak. Really? They were sworn enemies. Wow. So they would sit. The team was like, well, we got to get over this. But they would, with, with Lou Lamorello and the management, I mean, these are some st strong Russian yeah. men. Like, you, you're not going to put them in a room together and say, figure it out, guys, here, have a <laughs> share a coffee, get over your differences. Like, this is deep-rooted. <laughs> stuff that Kazatonov and Fatisov were going through at the time. And they would play them together as pairs because uh, um, they played together all those years in the Olympics yeah. and stuff. I, I believe they roomed them on the road together. They would not speak. They, wow. they, they were dis. Kazatonov was disloyal to Slava Fatisov. And that was it. Lifelong enemies. Wow. It was, yeah. it was wild to be part of. Okay. And uh, another bit of another bit of Cardiff Devils history here. We uh, came across one of your New Jersey teammates, Zdeno Segar, um, in I think it was John will tell me. He, he's my brain on this. <laughs> it, it, we went across to Belarus. So if you win the league, you go into now it's the Champions League. Back then it was the Europa Cup, uh, and we went. I think it was ninety four. Uh, autumn 94, 94, 95 season. Yeah, yeah. so we went to Belarus and um, we played against him. I think he was for Duke La Trenchen, which is his hometown team. Uh, we had a guy on our team, French-Canadian guy, Claude Dumas. Uh, very offensive guy, you know, wasn't a back checker. He smoked about 40 a day. He had like, these little toothpick arms and, you know, like a pigeon chest. And in this game, something happened with him and uh, Zdeno Sigar. And next thing you know, he's dropped the gloves. And we've, we've never seen Dumas drop the gloves before. And he's up against, we knew, you know, uh, Sigar had played in the NHL and he's up against him. And I know he wasn't a fighter or anything. And next thing you know, Dumas is swinging lefts and rights and lefts and rights. And he has beat up this NHL <laughs> superstar that we're playing against. And the guy ends up like his eyes were virtually closed and uh, back on the bus, you know, Dumas lights up, you know, he's probably his fifth dart. And he's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I used to fight a bit when, uh, when I was younger, you know, and he, he threw that out there cool as you like. And we were just like, you know, that he just uh, out of the blue with these little toothpick arms, just uh, thrown down with this uh, NHL. Sneak, sneaky tough. Yeah. Franny, just very quickly, can I, can I ask you, Franny, who did Claude Dumas replace and, and didn't really replace him as a devil? Who did he come in to replace? Um, well, it wouldn't be a podcast without mentioning Rick Brabant, uh, who's... <laughs> <laughs> 
Sorry, that's a, an ongoing joke, Jared. I apologize. Probably, <laughs> probably pound for pound, the best import that's come across to the UK. One of the best, Joey Martin, yeah. obviously the best. Um, <laughs> but Brabant was the Joey Martin of his day. You know, uh, he could do it all. He played for our big rival Durham at the time, and then he had a season in Cardiff where he had about two hundred and fifty points. And uh, he's he's just a little bit of an idol of John. So <laughs> somehow he gets a mention on every podcast. So on the John. Jared Scaldi. I get it out there. That's perfect. Got Rick Brabant in there. I honestly thought today's episode was going to be the one we didn't. <laughs> JD knows my thoughts. Uh, and, what a, <laughs> and what a link. Claude Dumas to Rick Brabant. Anyway. Right. Let's yeah. skip back. Uh, we're talking um, 93, 94, 94, 95. So, Jared, you've come to the mighty decks of Anaheim. Um, you play a run of games there, and then you go down to the A at uh, the IHL. Um, I know the AHL is you know the, the sort of established minor league at the moment, but what can you tell us about your time in the, the IHL and what, what type of league was that uh, at the time? Uh, the IHL was probably a better league in the sense that there was um, players near the end of their careers, NHL players that were going to the IHL. Um, the American League was definitely more of a development league. So it was a younger league. It was a harder league. The IHL, the cities were absolutely fantastic. From San Diego to Phoenix to Las Vegas to San Francisco, Salt Lake City, Utah, Atlanta. And, and so that attracted these, you know, guys in their late 20s, 30s that have a couple of years left and still make a few bucks. And um, so that league was really, really good. Um and the reason I ended up there was, so my, my season ended, I, I played I believe, 20 games for Anaheim that year, went to San Diego, had a really good playoff run. And because I was still on my entry level contract, they only had to qualify me, like give me a 12% raise. And it was going into my fourth year. And I was like, well, you know, I was, I was looking for something more than that on a contract and just a, a 12% raise. So I didn't sign. With them and I got an offer from Las Vegas played the year that year and then right at the end of the year Las Vegas re, or sorry Anaheim re-signed me so but the greatest part of that year is that's where I met my wife so my wife's from Las Vegas and um, met that year in, in, yeah. in Vegas and 26 years together now so um, that was a very special year and it was a lot of fun it was fun playing in Vegas because you know Vegas had never had a professional sports team the UNLV running Rebels basketball team at that time was such a big hit, um, college college uh, athletics, uh, but they didn't have a pro team, and we were the first pro team. So it was it, it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was great living in Vegas, a great atmosphere, and again, going to all these different cities on the West Coast of the United States was, uh, was really special. So I, I'm glad I did it, and it worked out all right because I ended up re-signing with Anaheim the next year. There was just a couple of guys on that uh, Las Vegas Thunder team I wanted to touch on. Um, one of them was one of my favorite imports to play over. He played over a year for Billingham, who are now in about the, the fourth division or whatever over here. Patrice Lefebvre, who is uh, such a talented guy. I've got his number because we, we were talking the other day, uh, Skulls, about hockey back in the day. And we'll, we'll move on to the special player uh, at some point. Um, but Patrice Lefebvre. 36 games, 165 points. That's what he put up over. <laughs> and that was the, the finished bottom. 
And the team that finished bottom in the top league in the UK at the time, that's what he did there. But he was he was some player, wasn't he? Just a small guy, but unbelievable he, skill. He, he was doing things back then because he was so little, like little spinoramas and outs. Yeah. And he could do things with the puck that we'd not seen before. Like kids today go to skills coaches and they work on all this, this stuff. And that was the first player I'd seen with that much ability. Like it was, it was, it was crazy how talented he was, how good he was, how elusive he was in his lateral movement. Like he'd get a puck and he'd go right across the blue line. just complete lateral without taking a stride and make plays. And yeah, he was, he was a, a, a pure, pure talent and yeah. you know, yeah, a dominant yeah. player at the NHL. You have to think that if the NHL rules were as they are today in the kind of style of the game, that, you know, he would have had a, a good shout in, uh, in the modern game. It, it was a different, yeah. The modern game would have benefited him a lot, um, just the way he played and his ability and, and without the holdups and the physicality. Um, and he wasn't, he was short, but he was a stocky short guy. Yep. So it wasn't like he got pushed off bucks and stuff. It was just the, the game's more open now and a guy like Patrice Lefebvre Probably would have got more games up in the NHL. I think he ended up with three with the Washington Capitals at one point. But um, yeah, his 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 ability was was through the roof. Yeah, and and then the other guy I wanted to mention was uh, one of the, one of my favorite guys to have as a teammate. Um, wasn't necessarily a big guy, but never backed down from anybody, and was you know pound for pound one of the tougher guys I played with. Frank Evans. Oh, Frankie Evans, yeah. yeah. I, yeah, that's right. Number three, Frankie Evans. What was he for yeah. us, JD? Was he eleven? Was he number eleven. Number eleven for us. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he he was tough. Right shot, I believe, uh, yeah. defenseman. Yeah, Frankie Evans. Yeah, we uh we had a good crew there. Like, and then if you look at our goaltending too, we had P- Pokey uh, Reddick. Son, yeah, his yeah. son played in Cardiff. So we had Pokey and uh, Clint Malarchuk and uh, Andrew McBain and uh I, and if you look it up, Franny. That was the lockout year, or maybe it was a strike. I don't know if it was a strike year, but Radic Bonk went to Ottawa Senators, but they had no training camp, so he came back to us. Alexei Yashin was in a contract yeah. dispute, yeah. so he came to us. So we had Bonk and Yashin on wow. our team for a little bit too. It was it was it was it was wild. Like it was, you know, those guys were yeah, they were above the league level. Um, but it was great to get to know Alexi Ash and like just a great, great human being and what a talent and what an amazing contract he got from the Islanders. Yeah. I think we're still paying him. <laughs> but that was Mike Milbury, wasn't it? He's still paying for uh, Di Pietro's contract as well. I think he's paying for both those guys for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a great time. I mean, to, to play in Las Vegas, downtown off the strip, and um, great group of guys. Um, Chris McSorley was our head coach. That was wow. fireworks every day. Yep. So <laughs> it was never dull. Never dull there. Wow. And then the year after, um, you, you get traded to Calgary, which is, uh, is probably yeah. the only reason that our owners signed you as our head coach. Because, <laughs> I think uh, so. I, I believe yeah. that, that, that's it. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it's funny how you, you, when things happen – you know, you take the absolute positive out of it. So I, I re-signed with Anaheim. We, we re-affiliated with Baltimore in the American League. So uh, I get sent down to Baltimore. 
and I'm there about a month and I get a call that I've been traded to Calgary Flames. At the time, Calgary uh, started the year like one and nine. Mm-hmm. Just had a horrible start to the year. A guy named Doug Riseborough traded for me. He was the general manager of the Calgary Flames at the time. So Dougie Riseborough calls me and he's just ecstatic. He goes, hey, so excited. You're going to help our team. You know, we're going to, you know, get you in the lineup soon here. We want you to go down to St. John for the weekend, play some games there, and then we'll get you up to Calgary when we get back off this road trip. But we're so excited to have you. We think you help. So I'm like, man, I'm going to Calgary Flames. Two days later, Dougie Riseborough gets fired. So they bring in Al Coates, who doesn't even know who I am. So I spent the rest of that year. I got one game up with Calgary that year and then re-signed with them. But those were fun years because St. John was such a great, um, fun place to live out in the Maritimes of Canada. Just great people, great fans. Um, You know, there's not much to do in those towns. So you're with your teammates all the time. Uh, you're always getting together. And we, we had some good runs there in St. John as a team. And uh, I, I, those two years were great. They were real special years. But I was going to say you had some, uh, some interesting teammates on, um, on that St. John's team that uh, the listeners in the UK will know. So David Ling played a couple of seasons in, in Nottingham. And uh, I think he went viral. Sense and- of the story there. Yeah, he, is he still playing at like 50? Like he, prob- probably, like, yeah. They just rolled him out to the PP, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he went viral because he uh, he came out in the period break and started uh, water skiing behind the Zamboni and jumping and, and yeah. putting on a show. Uh, he's an absolute beauty. Um, and, Absolutely. And another beauty, Paxton Schulte, who is uh, one of Todd's yeah. uh, teammates in the Belfast Giants and a, and a big legend over there and a big personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both those guys. Like Linger, Linger was so funny and stuff like that. Like he had no problem doing funny stuff whenever he wanted, no matter where we were. And, <laughs> and he was a good player. Like he, oh, yeah. he was tough too. Like he, he wasn't backing down from anybody, put up points. And then we traded for Paxton Schulte. And like he was a little, he was a little out there, and but he's another guy that was pretty tough and played hard every night. So, yeah, we had some great characters on those teams. Jared, you're obviously into psychology, and again, I'm probably jumping ahead. Franny and Gaz will, will bring you back, and I don't mean to put this on a downer, but uh, at what point do you start reconciling with yourself that a, you know, a proper NHL, well, not a proper NHL career, but a prolonged NHL career, and that was 20 years. At what point do you start reconciling that that's probably not going to happen? And this dream that you've thought about for years and years probably just isn't quite going to come out like you thought it was going to. You don't admit it. No? You just, you just keep going. And my philosophy was this, is that if I could just play one more NHL game. So, you know, we talk about those years, I'm 25, 26. And that was a pivotal point in my longevity to be able to play 17 years. Cause that was the point where I still thought I was going to make an NHL team as an offensive guy. Yeah. And I led the team in scoring and I was putting up points, 30 plus goals in the American hockey league. But I had a coach there that was like, you'll never play another game in the NHL. If you keep playing this way, you, you have success here, mm-hmm. but you won't have success up there. And that's when my game changed. And if you notice later on, I get to San Jose, I start playing more games back in the NHL. I didn't play an NHL game for about two and a half years, two years. Yeah. Um, and that he changed my game. And I, you know, I had to be willing to change. At that point, I wasn't willing to change. 
um, you know, it's like, you have to admit it. It's like, you're an alcoholic. You got to admit it, right? Yeah. I'm not going to be good enough to be a top six guy in the NHL. And that's hard to swallow because you've, you've thought that your whole life, but it started getting me games in the national hockey league. So beyond that, even in my thirties, I was still signing NHL contracts because yeah. I, I, I mean, I had, I had so many opportunities over the years to just, I could have signed in Vegas on a minor league deal, you know, three, four year deal and had a great life, but I was like, it's not what I wanted. You know, I wanted to play in the national hockey league, Salt Lake city, a couple of times offered me contracts to stay in on a minor league deal. I didn't want it. I wanted to play in the national hockey league. So you just don't admit it to yourself. You just keep going until you hit, 35 maybe yeah. okay now now it's not happening i think i'll go to japan so that's kind of where it was from there. that's a good question though it really is uh, and some guys come to peace with it at a, at a younger age because here's the other pressures you get over here is that you know you're 25 26 you're leading scorer in your team and everyone's telling you, you should go to europe what are you doing over here like go to switzerland go to sweden you know germany wasn't quite there yet um and I just, it never interested me. Never, ever. My agent would call me every year and goes, hey, I got an offer from Bern. I got an offer from this team. The KHL hadn't quite developed yet. Yeah. And um, I'd had no interest. I had absolutely no interest in um, going to Europe because I wanted to play in the National Hockey League. If that meant one game or 10 games or, you know, geez, would it be nice one full season? I don't know, but that was my focus. And it wasn't about going to Europe to make money. It was about playing the national hockey league. So I carried that on right up to like to the very end where you're like, yeah. okay, now this is not going to be happening anytime soon. Well, that's great. Yeah, that's good. I think that that was. That's, that's, why, we bring, a, that's why we I, bring JD on. He asked no, I, 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 I just bring it down. I ruin it. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's like, he's like the Oprah Winfrey of this. You know, yeah. to <laughs> draw the stuff out of you. Yeah. I'm going to give away a car now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so there's uh, I think it's your next year after St. John's you play for three different NHL teams that year that must have been a bit of a crazy uh, crazy ride there and, and Jared, Jared, before, before you, am I right in thinking during this time I think I read you were claimed five times from waivers in two months yeah yeah well, Th this was like... <laughs> so JD back to your point about yeah. trying to get to the NHL that year, I couldn't get out of the NHL. Everybody kept trying to send me down, and, and somebody would claim me. And like, there, there hits a point where you're just like, I just want to go play. Like yeah. When you're bouncing around teams, you're, you're missing practice, you're getting healthy scratched. You're, you know, so, so how it all started was that, that coach that I told you about in St. John, a guy by the name of Paul Baxter, played a long time in the National Hockey League, led the NHL in penalty minutes a couple of years. He's the one that got me to change my game. The next year, after my second year in St. John, he went to San Jose as the assistant coach, recommended me, called me up and said, you want to come to San Jose? And I was like, man, I, yeah, absolutely. Like to have someone in your corner. And so I go to San Jose, go to training camp, play some exhibition games. I get sent down to Lexington, Kentucky. Okay, play maybe 10 games there. I get called back up to San Jose. Well, I started having success. I, I'm playing there. I'm playing a lot. Daryl Sutter's the head coach. He's playing me a lot. Uh, Bernie Nichols was injured. There's some other injuries. 
And then after January, all these guys came back. So they said, hey, sorry, we're gonna have to put you on waivers. And we don't think you're gonna clear. I'm like, I've been on waivers my whole freaking career. Like, mm-hmm. and you're like, no, I don't think you're gonna clear. So now I've played for Lexington, Kentucky. I've played for the San Jose Sharks, the Chicago Blackhawks claim. So I go to Chicago. I think I play three games with the Hawks. They go to send me down. San Jose reclaims me and then puts me right back on waivers. Forty-eight hours later, claim me. Play there one game. Yeah. They put me on waivers. Chicago Blackhawks. <laughs> I go back to Chicago, play four more games for the Hawks. They go to send me down, and San Jose reclaims me. <laughs> and here's the kicker: my wife was pregnant and oh, was with me on oh, every one of those oh. trips. Good yeah. woman. So she, we lived off Michigan Avenue in Chicago. We were in San Jose. We were in Dallas, Lexington, yeah. Kentucky. So finally, San Jose reclaimed me. Yeah. and called Chicago and Dallas and other teams saying, hey, his wife's having a baby in a month. Like, yeah. He's our guy. We signed him in the summer. <laughs> Let him go down to Lexington so he can have the yeah. baby. And that's where my daughter was born, in Lexington, Kentucky, after a full year of just going around and around wow. and around. And you were yeah, still was, speaking was, to you after all those trades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it was wild. It, it, was, it was fun. Like, it was, uh, like I said, I, there was a point where I, Everybody wanted me on their team to be their depth guy, but I just couldn't get through waivers that year. Yeah. I just kept getting reclaimed and reclaimed. And, yeah. and there, hit, there does come a point where you're like, I just want to play. I don't even care where it is. I just want to play and have some sort of normalcy to my life, you know? But um, yeah, my, it, it, it was fun. Yes, yeah, so that's how my daughter was, uh, wow. she was born in Lexington. My wife was pregnant that whole time. And with me, she didn't stay back. She, when I'd get called saying, you're going to Chicago, we get on a flight the next day, fly to Chicago. Two weeks later, we're flying to Dallas. We're flying back to Chicago. Yeah, crazy. And then in, in Kentucky, I noticed uh, a notable teammate of yours then, Zdeno uh, Chara. Yeah. Yeah, so you must have been a young guy then. Yeah, so we were, uh, we were the main affiliate for the San Jose Sharks, but Mike Milbury type thing, um, probably to save costs or something. They loaned us like five guys, like mm-hmm. five, six New York Islanders. And Char was an Islander draft pick. Yeah. So Big Z comes to us and you're like, holy, I like just a huge gangly. You know, he's going to be good, but he's not good at this point. Yeah. Like he, she's just a big body defenseman. And funny story, um, you know, in the minors, you have to do a lot of promotional type stuff. And he didn't have a car. We lived in the same apartment complex. So I told him I was going to come by and pick him up for this promotion. And so I go up to his apartment and he's baking got cookies on. He, he baked me cookies for coming to pick him up, which is kind of not, I don't do that. Throw me a beer or something. Like that. Big Z made cookies. So I'm sitting there waiting for him. And he's got this brand new TV, the old school tube, you know, like yeah, a big, yeah. the big TV. Box. And he's got his remotes, but he's put little baggies on them with twist ties on his remotes. So I was like, Z, what's what's up with the baggies on the remotes? And he's like, oh, you know, you eat the chicken and the grease gets on the buttons. I don't want the grease on the buttons. And I'm like, Z, you're not going to own this TV in another three, four months. You're like, you're going to be a millionaire. 
You don't need this TV. <laughs> he was projecting the remotes on the on the thing. Like very interesting, interesting guy. Like when when the one of the lockouts he signed in Sweden, I don't know if it was Faryastad or one of the teams, and he went there and learned the language. Like he went there to play for the team and learn Swedish while he was there. We're like most guys are just going there to get a paycheck and wait for yeah. the NHL season to start up again. Big Z goes over there and learns the language while he's there and immerses himself right into the culture and stuff. Like he, he really is a special, special person. Um, you know, what he's done on the ice is great, but the, the, the humanitarian human being that he is, is, is fantastic. Is that why him and Thornton are still playing into their forties? That it's not just, you know, the love of the game is it's, it's more than the paycheck. Way more than the paycheck. Like, like, Here's what Boston – so even Chara – Boston Bruins have to play a difference. He's slower. He's slower yeah. than McAvoy and all these other guys. Yeah. So what Boston does is they make sure their defense can stay on the inside of the ice, keep everything on the outside. Mm-hmm. Big Z has time to turn. He's got his big stick contained. Yeah. Well, the NHL now is not about containing. It's about getting on people. It's about being as quick as you can to contact quick. And Z can't play that way. But you can't have five defensemen play that way and one not. Yeah. So Boston's had to always play to the way to protect Chara. Um, and that's why the Otters are the uh, Capitals are like, we're fine with that because of what he brings. Like mm-hmm. his command of a room and, and, and the way he treats his teammates and treats the fans and the organizations – and the same thing with Jumbo, um, you know, his life that he infuses into that locker room every day of just like how lucky we are to be here, how fortunate we are. We get to play hockey. He just brings a youthful exuberance to that lineup every day, which is great for the Leafs right now to have a guy like Jumbo in that lineup. Sorry, Friday, I got no more. No, I, I was <laughs> gonna I was just gonna say, um, you're not done with your journey around the NHL yet, are you? Um, is, uh, you end up in Atlanta. Was that another expansion draft? Uh, second year. Second year, yeah. Yeah, so I, I was in Salt Lake. And uh, the second year of the team, Atlanta, they offered me a contract. That was one of those moments I could have stayed in Salt Lake for who knows. You know, they, they were willing to offer me something to stay and be the veteran guy because I was 29 turning 30 at that point. Um, but back to our, our, our point, I thought Atlanta gave me a chance to play in the national hockey. Yeah. You know, in a, a younger team, a second year expansion team. And so that's why I decided to go play for the Atlanta Brashers and, you know, thinking that, you know, that would be the best opportunity for me to play and stay in the NHL. And that was the one moment. So you, you spent all these years and I never really had that. I had a couple of moments where I thought, I was close that I'm here for the rest of the year. Like they're, they can't send me down doing well. And then something happens or you have a few off games. Now you're helping scratch for a couple and then you're back in the minors, you know, just mm-hmm. how it goes. Well, we're in Montreal, right? The old Montreal forum. Mm-hmm. And Kirk Fraser was our coach. He was tough as nails back in the day, seventies, eighties. Kirk Fraser was tough, mm-hmm. tough, great, great man. Really good coach. We were not very good. We were super soft. Like uh, this team was not very good. The Atlanta Thrashers. And 
we go into Montreal and we were down three nothing after the first period. And Kurt Fraser comes in and starts yelling at the centerman, saying we lost every face off that period. Too soft, you centerman. This Trevor Linden, someone needs to get in Trevor Linden's face. It's like Trevor Linden, he's six <laughs> four, six five. Like, you know, so he's yelling at the centerman specifically. So we go out to start the second period. We get scored on again, and he just says my line. I go over the boards. Trevor Linden comes over the boards. So now here we are. Sorry, it wasn't the old form. It was at the Bell Center. Mm-hmm. We're sitting at center ice. I'm sitting. I've never fought in the NHL. I've never fought anybody six four like Trevor Linden in the minors. But I'm like, I have to do something here. This is that moment that comes in life. It's presented to me <laughs> that you have to do. If I don't do something, I'll, I'll regret this the rest of my life. Cause maybe this was the one chance it's never been presented this way to me, but I'm going to make the most of this. So I sat there a little circle and got some courage up and uh puck drops. I kind of spear him in the side and follow through with an elbow and his gloves come off. My glove comes off. He smoked me with a couple. <laughs> I go down uh, I get to the box, five each for fighting. I'm not hurt. It was awesome. Kurt Frey, we end up coming back, tying the game. Kurt Fraser comes in the room and just going on, finally, somebody with some balls around here. It's just like, <laughs> you know, I'm so excited. I remember we flew home to Atlanta that night, and my wife was in bed, and I woke her up, and I was like, they can't send me down now. We're here for the rest of the year. There's no way after. What I just did was so out of character. You know, so far out of my comfort zone yeah. that, you know, the coach loves it. They can't send me down. Week later, I get sent down to Orlando. Down there. <laughs> it was like, oh, that was the moment I thought that, yeah. okay, I'm here. I'm going to spend the rest of the year here at the Atlanta Thrashers. But Jared, what was that market like? Because obviously it didn't pan out. They've, they've gone to Winnipeg, but you're playing in the deep south, I guess. And did, could you feel the hockey wasn't going to take there? or? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you. The rink was beautiful, right downtown. Uh, unique building. They put all the suites on one side, so when you sat on the bench looking out, it was all suite levels. Not and all the fans are behind you. It was a, a great arena. Um, it, it it was more of a minor league hockey town because they had the Atlanta Knights there for years and they did very well and won some championships and it was it. it I didn't see it getting better. Like I didn't feel like, you know, this is going to be a place that, you know, even with drafting Heatley and drafting um, um, Kovalchuk. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't get the feel that this was a real hockey market. And it was proven when, you know, the NHL just let them walk. The city just let them walk. Like Arizona has been fighting for 20 plus years to keep them in the desert out there where Atlanta just said one day, we don't want to be here anymore. And they went, go ahead, go to Winnipeg. You know, it just was so easy that the way they left that city in that market. Um, but yeah, it's not a hockey market at all. Like it really isn't. It's a great gritty town, but uh, to your point, no, there was no real feel that this is going to be a real hockey market and a place that's going to have success. Can I ask you one more grown-up question that's really not interesting for anybody else? What's it like playing in that environment, though? Because I guess you know, down in the south, you're from you know, you know, Canada and what have you. Over here, we hear stories and, and what have you. Is, is it just a different environment? Is it a culture shock? Does it feel like a different country almost? What, what, what's it like playing in the um, sense? 
Well, yes and no in the sense, because I'd already played in Anaheim. I played in Vegas and those were culture shock. Anaheim was a culture shock because you're going to the rink in flip-flops and shorts and sunglasses. Like that's unheard of. (laughs) You know, we didn't, you didn't grow up like that and you don't ever envision that. So going to Atlanta wasn't a culture shock. It was just more knowing that we're not a very good team and I don't see it getting much better. Like when I was in Jersey, and I have the utmost respect for Lou Lamorello. I mean, he, he possibly is the best at what he does in, in that league. Um, you knew he was doing the right things to get that New Jersey Devils organization to be in the top echelon team. And he let, he let us know that, that we're going to be one of the best organizations in hockey. And you believed it. Atlanta was not, it, it felt like from an organization it was all the pinch and pennies, um, you know, different things that as players you see it. And it's, it's hard to complain when you're coming from the minor leagues and you're chartering on a private plane, you know. But the, 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 cup, the corners that were cut in that organization was – everybody knew it. Like, you know, you, you, I'm not going to complain because the alternative is I'm on a 12-hour bus trip next week. Yeah. So I'm not complaining about nothing when I'm in the NHL and about a charter, but you got guys like Ray Ferraro that have been around and had success. And they're like, man, from the hotels you stayed at to the way you travel to different things, players we picked up, players we traded for cost cutting purposes. So that was a more of a culture shock than say the, the fans and the city and all that kind of stuff that really didn't have that much of effect. Hockey at that point has now been, it's in Tampa Bay. It's in South mm-hmm. Florida. It's in two teams and three teams in California. There's a team in Texas. So that sort of thing, uh, I, I, we were unfazed by that. And then there was uh, one last stop in the NHL before you uh, finally caved into your agent and headed over to Europe for the first time. <laughs> so so you, you got a game in, in, uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, yeah. Spent most of the year in, in Chicago. Um, one of your teammates, Ben Simon, was over here for a year as the player coach yep. in Sheffield, uh, who's a great player and is doing very well now in his coaching career. But uh, yeah, talk us through that last move into the NHL and the kind of realization that maybe it was try- time to try uh, try something different. So that was the point which we talked about earlier. Was I'm in Chicago, Atlanta just kept all their young guys up. Um, the other young guys kind of made the team. So as a player now 31, kind of like, I'm not going back up. Like they're, they're sticking with their young guys, let them develop. And so that's when I decided to look into Europe and sign in Switzerland. So I already signed like in January or February, which how, how it goes. Right. Um, so I already had my contract in place for the next year, finishing out my contract in Chicago under an Atlanta Thrashers NHL deal. Um, all of a sudden I get traded to Philadelphia. Yeah. Philadelphia. I get traded to the flyers. So I'm like, Oh man. Okay. Well, I know what it's for. It's for their farm team, the Philadelphia Phantoms. And I'm, I go down there and play all of a sudden one day I get called up. And now this is, this is one of my favorite moments. My last NHL shift. This is the last time I touched the ice in the national hockey game. We're in Buffalo, New York, playing the Sabres and I'm with the flyers. And when I get called up, they put me on a line with Simone Gagne and Justin Williams. So I take Jeremy Roenick's spot on his line. They didn't put me on the fourth line. They 
put me right on in his spot. So I'm like, wow, this is great. So the, the game's going along fine. Third period, I take a tripping penalty. So it's like, you know, you, you know, you don't want to hurt the team or anything like that. And so I go to the box 30 seconds later, Buffalo takes a penalty. So now it's four on four. Okay. I'm off the hook. If something happens, you know, bad penalty, Buffalo takes another penalty. So now it's four on three with me coming out of the box. So I can hear the players banging their sticks to get my attention to sprint across the ice. So John LeClaire, back-to-back 50 goal scorer, you know, Adam Oates is on the ice, Eric Desjardins, Keith Primo, they're all out there. Mark Recchi, they're all out there. And I'm going, this is probably my last NHL game. I'm going to Switzerland. I'm not even going to look up. I'm going on the power play. I'm going this way. So John LeClaire's got one leg over the boards, like giving me the, like get, trying to get my attention. The coach, Billy Barber's waving. And I just kept my head down. That gate opened up and I beeline to the slot, five on three against the Sabres, trying to get the goal for that. Come on, just feed me one here. That was my last shift in the NHL. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's crazy. So it was it was it was good. It was uh it was fun. I told Mike Sullivan that story and he goes, You and I would have had a big problem if you would have done that. To me. <laughs> what was the reception when you got to the bench? What did they say to you? It, it was fine. I don't I mean I'm sure John LeClaire was a little salty, but um <laughs> it was fine. We chartered back and and then it was it was it was actually it was April. I remember it was uh Easter. It was Easter Sunday was the game and uh our season ended shortly after that, but it was, uh, I just said to myself, I'm like, screw yeah. this. I've never been on a five on three in the <laughs> NHL. I'm going right to that. I love that. So you do end up in uh, Switzerland with uh, Lausanne. Um, how was that experience? I, uh, I imagine it was uh, pretty different to the, the hopping around that you'd done the, the few years previous. Yeah, it was it was so different for the, the fans. And we had great fans for 10,000 people a night with the, the fan section and and everything. Um, another funny story, Jesus. Um, I, I did have some success in my career, but uh, <laughs> it's such a it was such a different thing. I struggled with it a little bit like, um, you know, I'm so used to American Hockey League and the way you're treated in the NHL and um, so you're, you're allowed three imports at a time. So I get there and we have four imports and one Russian named Dmitry Shamelin, who played in the B leagues before another team in scoring had a year left on his deal, but the coach wanted to get rid of him, but he wouldn't leave. He's like, he's from Russia. He's like, I'm not going back home. I want to stay in Switzerland. So they couldn't move him. They couldn't get him to get out of his contract. So I show up, there's four. So I said to the coach, I was like, what's going on? He goes, you're my guy. Don't worry about Shamelin. We're going to move him. You're, you're here. Like, okay. So we start the first five games. And I think I've got like a goal and two assists. Nowhere near an import should have in the Swiss aid. Like, you know, there's, there's some pressure building now of like fans. And I went to the French part because I speak French. I wanted to go to the French part so I could read the paper. I could understand what people are saying. So now the debate starts who should play, me or Shamlin. So sure enough, the sixth game, every time I went over the boards, 10,000 people would chant 
Shamoline, la, 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 la. the whole shift, 40 seconds, 45 seconds. As soon as I came off, the crowd would stop chanting. And then I'd come back over. Shamoline, the they chanted for a guy that's sitting in the stands. So I was healthy scratched the next game. So I'm sitting there in Europe going, I'm a healthy scratch in Europe. Like, where is my life going? You know, but it turned out it was a great experience for my daughter got to go to school there and the crowds were great with some great teammates and uh, uh, I really enjoyed it. But what I really did miss was the grind of the American League playing 82 games or 76 games at the time. And that's when I came back. I decided I wanted to come back to North America and sign with the Dallas Stars. And so you did and, and played the next year. So you went back to North America, played the next year in Utah with uh, another one of my, probably one of my top three, if not the top favorite teammates, Regan Darby, who I still still speak to on a regular basis. We'll randomly FaceTime each other. Um, An absolute beauty, spent a year in Cardiff. I I got really close to him and, you know, that was, God, how many years ago was that? Um, 2005. 16 years ago, but I still speak to him on a fairly regular basis. So he was on that team, I think. Um, for quite a few games, and also a guy uh, that Devils fans will know well, Charles Longley. Yes, Charlie. Yeah, we got yeah. Charlie halfway through the year. He was tearing up the East Coast League, and we yeah. signed him for the rest of the year, Charles, that year. So, uh, yeah, that was that to an earlier question of when do you know that was the year that I came back and I knew that I'm probably not going to get back up. Like, you just know your legs, your everything like that. And I, we, I enjoyed that year. It was fun. I love Salt Lake city. I played there three different times, but that was the year I kind of knew that, you know, I'm probably, you know, not going up. And then the team moved to San Antonio, but they introduced the vet rule that year in American league. We only allowed so many vets. So now we've got all these guys under contract and all the vets are sitting out while the kids play. So all these junior kids, 20 years old, are playing, and we're 32, 33 years old being healthy scratch. So the game changed at that point for veteran guys. Like, you know, it really limited uh, financially what you can make and then spots. There just wasn't enough spots because you can only play so many vets at that point. So that's how I ended up going to San Antonio the next year. I only played a handful of games or three games, I believe, two games, and then went to Sweden um, for the rest of that year. But uh, – you know, that, that was kind of the point where I knew that, okay, and I'm going to go over and, and play and experience Europe in different, different places. And, uh, uh, and I'm really glad I did. I'm really glad I got to experience all of this. I know we're not covering this, Jared, in, in this podcast, but I'm, I'm interested. You said that you, you missed the grind of maybe the AHL and things like that. Were you starting to think at this point about, I want to stay in the game after the playing days are done. You know, I, I want to be, or, or did that kind of just fall on you? When did the thoughts start coming in that, you know, I don't want to be a fireman or I don't want to do the, the office job. Yeah. When I've done Europe, I actually want to stay in the game and I want to get into coaching. Right around there. Like, you know, I, I've just always, I've just always loved the game. Like I love watching NHL games. I love the game. I, I all the aspects of it. I, I just really, enjoyed it so I think at that point was when I kind of was like and I started seeing friends of mine that have now retired going into 
coaching. And so now there's a clear path of that, you know, you can see where this could, could potentially go. So it was right around 32, 33, that it was like, you know what, I'm going to see how long I can play and then, you know, see what happens after that. So yeah, it was definitely around that period that you start looking at, you know, you're still trying to financially provide for your family and make as much money as you can at that point, but also knowing that this is something I want to do. I want to stay in the game in some capacity, whether it is scouting, but generally more coaching because, you know, like I said, the grind and, and being in the trenches would, is what I really liked, you know, and then when you scout, you're not in the, you're not quite in the trenches as, you know, when you're cutting video till two in the morning, you're on that bus or you're, getting up the next day and you got to gain that afternoon and dead tired and you, you know, you got to still get to work and try to win a hockey game. So I knew about that point because that's what I kind of want to get into. Just looking at the year, year in Sweden, Jared, and the thing that stands out to me is where did all those penalty minutes come from? Oh, I was losing my mind. <laughs> welcome to you. Welcome to Europe and European referee. And now I can look back at some players when I, when I'm especially right now looking at players to come to Cardiff next year. And I'll look at some guys that I've coached against and the guy will have like 110 minutes in Europe. I'm like, how did you do that? And I have to reflect on myself. <laughs> I hit a point where I, I, I couldn't do the things physically that I was used to be able to do mentally. I still thought I was there physically. I couldn't get up and down the ice, especially on the ice in Sweden, you know, that Olympic size ice, that huge ice they play on there. And that was a fraction of the player that I, I was. So it became very frustrating. And I mean, I was, and, and one thing in my defense, Sweden, you just blow on somebody. That's, a <laughs> you know, there were some incidents there. I was like, are you kidding me? Like centerman would give me a little shot or something. I'd give it back to him. I'd get five minutes, five and 10. It'd be like, really? Like, that's part of the game. Like, you know, so mm. I was a frustrated player and, um, and the league itself was uh, not designed that way to show your frustration. So yeah, that was an abnormality for me to have that many penalty minutes uh, in a season, especially mm. in Europe, which is hard to do, especially in that league, Sweden, especially. I like that. I thought you just maybe turned into a bit of a bully and just... <laughs> <laughs> Run rough shot over the uh, no, that wasn't until later or... in Japan. I became a bully. <laughs> <laughs> Jared, around this time, did you ever have any talks with anyone in the UK? It seems like that that it would be this sort of time that maybe it'd be contact from someone, yeah. Like uh, Ben Simon and I are good buddies, like obviously from our days in, in uh, Atlanta and Orlando, and then we've we've helped each other along the way when I left Cincinnati to go to Norfolk. He was my number one recommendation for the ownership, wanted me to help in, um, you know, finding my replacement. And Ben was the first guy on my list and, and he ended up getting the job. So we, we've had a connection even beyond our playing days. So, you know, I've spoke to him at length. Uh, Dougie Christensen, who's good friends with uh, Todd, you know, they've obviously worked together. Dougie and I have been in contact for years throughout our, our coaching careers. And so I've had a few good conversations with him about the league and what to expect and, and of course, as we all know, Todd's, uh, uh, you know, three month long interview process before I got <laughs> hired to, uh, I learned a lot about the league and during those times, eh, Franny? 
Yep. <laughs> it was quite the process, wasn't it? That, that's a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, 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 no, it, it's exciting. I mean, uh, I was fortunate the other day I got a lot of the games from last year, so I've been able to watch some games and some big games that you guys had against uh, Sheffield and stuff. So, um, no, it's exciting. I, I, I'm really excited to get started. So then uh, your final stop then is, uh, is a, brief spin, a brief stint in the IHL and then you head over to Slovenia. And uh, we actually spoke about this the other day. So, um, yeah, t- tell the listeners the, uh, how you came to support the same football team as me, Man United. Uh, obviously, and Cardiff City, JD. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and Skulls <laughs> is going to be a huge Cardiff City fan. He's already, he's already told me that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Tell a story about how you came to uh, to be a Man United fan from from playing in Slovenia. Well, it, it comes from uh, first of all, just to rewind just a bit. So talking about getting into coaching, um, that IHL was more like the on par with the ECHL back then. Like so, they brought the name back, the IHL. So it was really, uh, I'd probably say even a rung below the ECHL slightly. You know, so. A good friend of mine I grew up with here in Niagara Falls was the head coach. And he asked me, like, what are you doing next year? And I said, I don't know, like, you know, I'm 36, 37. And he says, why don't you be my player assistant coach? So that really was the first step into getting into coaching. So I went up there and um, it was good. The only problem is when you're 36 and the only guy in the league that's played NHL games, every night someone's running you or, you know, trying to – it was just – there was no easy games. It was, it was a tough, tough thing. So uh, I got a call from my agent in Europe saying that Yetsinitsa uh, in Slovenia was looking for um, a player. So uh, that's how that all happened with there. But the George Best, uh, uh, for me, when I, Slovenia was more like a, not a third world, but it was definitely more like, um, like a Russia, like anything kind of goes with this, this Irish pub this is this pub that was george best and i met the owner and i was like geez how'd you get the rights to this he goes well, i didn't have i didn't pay for this i just put the sign up george best <laughs> so i'm like and it's all his stuff and the games are playing so i became a big man U fan in uh over there and i got to know a lot about the history of, of the club and, and and moving forward so that's where uh franny i talked the other day that's I'm a Cardiff City fan for sure, but definitely a Man U fan also. Yeah, and then you ended up with the uh, with the championship, which would turn out to be your last uh, last season as a player. Yeah, yeah. So, so people talk about like uh, go, uh, in athletes in all sports, so they, they say they want to go out on top, you know, like uh, on their terms or winning a championship or whatever. I uh, we we played uh, in Slovenia. There's only two good teams. There's Ljubljana. And yet to need say, and then all these other teams, Marabor, like they, they, they can't compete. It's not even close. All the best players play on those two teams. So we had to go through the playoffs, just plowing through teams. Well, my first game of the, of the championship, I throw my back out against a team. We beat like 16, nothing. I never played again. That was my last shift of, of pro hockey. Wow. And uh, that was it. So the coach asked me if I would help him on the bench. So now I've sort of gone from being a player assistant coach to now helping out a coach full-time on the bench. 
And that was such a great experience to be in the coach's office and talking about stuff and running some meetings and really you know, propelled moving forward into getting into coaching. When you look back on the playing career, Jared, any regrets? No, I can't. I mean, there's certain situations like we talked about, like, you know, going to Atlanta, hoping that that's your opportunity, but you're, you're going to a team that's not very good and is more expected of you. Like, Sometimes going to a, a really good team and finding a niche, like, you know, fourth line center for five years, there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes those teams are better. It's easier to find a home because you just have to play a certain role where you go to a team that's lesser, there's more expected of you. You have to bring more. Um, and if you can't, they're going to find someone else that can. So but looking back, you know what the signings I've had, the places we've gone, I look at being very fortunate to, to have lived in so many great cities and played with so many great teammates and, you know, my wife and I, and then our daughter and then our son, uh, you know, came along. So to, to experience all this stuff has been tremendous. Excellent. And final two questions from me, uh, best player that you played with and best player that you played against. Um, best player or best player I played with. No, Scott Stevens was, he was, he was impressive. Like you, you had an obligation to Scott Stevens every day because his intensity, even in practice, when you saw him in the room, the responsibility to make sure that in practice you work as hard as you can. You just felt that leadership from him. And he was obviously such a great player, but the purest, um, most talented player, Chris Chelios in Chicago, like he, he was just so much better than, everybody else. And it was just such an effortless thing for him. He was just so good, you know, getting to play with him and, and, and more so the fact that he was just a regular guy. Like he wasn't, you know, some guys it, it, on NHL teams, there, there's a divide of the superstars and then the middle guys. And, you know, when you're, when you're in Chicago with Chelly, he didn't care if you're just a call up guy or a healthy scratch or whoever you were, Chelly treated everybody the same and he was the best player on the team. And, it was amazing watching him how hard he competed every night and how effortless he made the game and, and how he enjoyed the game. So I'd have to say he was the, the most talented and special player I played um, with playing against the, the two easily hands down uh, Gretzky and Lemieux. I mean, that's just another level of um, taking a face off against those two guys, especially Gretzky for me, because that was my childhood idol. And um, you know, just being in his presence is good. Now, playing against Iserman is extremely special. Like it, it was surreal to you know play against him. But Gretzky is the one for me. I got to play one time in LA against him, and then a few times when he was with the Rangers. So um, you just can't believe you're out there. Can't believe you're on the yeah. same sharing the same ice with someone like that. Well, Mike Babcock played in the UK as well, Jared. I hear him and Chalios are still really close, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're, sure they're, I'm sure they're buddies. Maybe <laughs> maybe want to be an assistant. What did he just sign in Saskatchewan or something? Didn't he? University of Saskatchewan. Yeah. He didn't yeah, go through that's... the interview process well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, only, like... he only made the seventh round of the Devils interview. You <laughs> <laughs> can get past that. Yeah, yeah, y'all, Babs. I we we've had our fill of Babs up here in Toronto. Just some yeah. stuff. It's amazing how some guys' stuff don't get out, and other guys does get out. But like, there's so many things that Babs that people aren't talking about. Yeah, this time especially here in Toronto, and uh, um, 
you know, he's, he's obviously had success and, yeah. you know, with the team Canada's and, and all that, but um, that's a, it's an interesting man. That's one for the bar. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, what have you got to, uh, to, to sum, sum us up here? Well, I mean, you know, what a fascinating conversation talking about Crowder on the telly as a, as a young child watching Hockey Night in Canada to, Put it on the sweater of all those famous teams that you watched. And as a child, you know, not many players get to have played in so many famous jerseys um, at the at the very top of the sport. So, Chad, thank you so much for, for taking us through uh, your playing career. That was uh, that was really fascinating. That was really special, and uh, I'm sure that uh, not just Devils fans, but all hockey fans will. Uh, Take something from our conversation this evening. Oh, that's great, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. This is a lot of fun. And we will get you back to, to maybe closer to the uh, resumption of, of Eddie Hockey over here to uh, get a bit more coaching uh, insight from you. So uh, the Devils yeah, we'll fans. We'll see you in about two years then. <laughs> <laughs> 2023. Yeah. The, the one thing I've learned is I can't wear my, my Detroit Red Wings stuff around the rink anymore or my Liverpool stuff around the rink anymore. <laughs> oh, I, no. my, my wardrobe for, for match nights is out of the window. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jerry. That was really, really interesting. Thank you. Hey, thanks Amazing. so much, guys. Hey, have a great evening. We'll talk to you guys soon. Will do. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, thank you, guys. Thank you. So there we have it. The interview that we warned you would be absolutely superb as delivered. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that whether you're a fan of the Cardiff Devils or a fan of any other hockey team, you took something very entertaining from that story. John um, surpassed all my expectations hearing about uh, Jared's trials and tribulations as a professional hockey player. No, absolutely. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I gave up married at first sight Australia tonight. First time I've, I've had the opportunity to, to speak to the gentleman, to speak to Jared and, uh, uh, you know, thoroughly engaging guy. And he, he, he tells a good story and can understand why, uh, you know, he came across so well in the, the interview process and uh, both on and off camera, he was exactly the same, very, very natural. And, uh, was downplaying his career a little bit, I, I you know, and, and you, you, you guys said it as well. He, he was a hell of a hockey player and, and he's also got a great coaching resume behind him. So uh, we, we've just had one great head coach uh, in Cardiff uh, and, and, I, and I think uh, credit to Franny and the guys. I think uh, we might have just picked up another one. Franny, we um, heard a lot about the interview process, both in the pod and uh, in the run-up to uh, Scully being announced as coach. But listening to him talk there, I, I don't think it's any surprise that he was uh, a standout candidate in an interview process. Yeah, the, the, one, um, the, the one thing that really sort of grasped me when, uh, when Jared was speaking in, in his interview, in, in one of the interviews, it, it, was, a, it was quite the process. But... Um, <laughs> It, the question was all about how do you relate to players and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, what he, what he said was, uh, it was fascinating that he's played at so many different levels and he's had so many different roles on the team that he feels he can relate to players at all stages of their career. So at one time he was the 17 year old aspire, aspiring to be in the NHL. 
you're so driven, you're hungry, you know what you want, you want to get there. So he can, he can relate to that kind of guy. He's then made it to the NHL and he's fighting to, to stay there. So he's on a, a lower line, sort of fighting for minutes, trying to get a bigger role on the team. So he can relate to that kind of guy. Um, you know, he's then been the guy that's been sent down to the AHL. So, you know, a bit despondent about, you know, being down in the AHL where you want to be in the NHL. So it's not really where you want to be in your career, but, you know, you've somehow got to motivate that guy to get back up to, you know, to the big league. And, you know, then as a veteran player, as he's moving through, so rather than being that sort of younger guy that's looking for mentorship or leadership, he's the leader then that's, you know, when he talked about going to some of the expansion teams, you know, he was all of a sudden the veteran guy that was brought in to help some of the younger guys uh, come through into, into big roles. So that was, that was the, the one standout thing from the interview process is that, you know, how he could relate to guys in all different stages of their career. And that, you know, that excited in me and, you know, and, and Todd and, and Lord, who was in the, in the process as well. Um, yet you, you, you said it, JD, he did play down his career. I mean, he played over 100 games in the NHL, which so few people get to do. Um, you know, it was evident that he would have loved to have that one season, you know, stay up for the whole season and, and see what he could do. Because you look at his numbers. I mean, the times when he's playing 20 games in an organization, he's getting nine or 10 points. It's half a point a game. That's career guys, if they do that they've had a good career. So I think he's been a little bit unfortunate, but when you take a look at the layer below that, when he's gone down to the AHL, he's a point of the game. That, that's unbelievable, unbelievable output from a, from a forward. And I think you know, he's probably been a little bit unlucky, if I'm honest, in terms of the amount of NHL games that he's played because you know constantly producing like that throughout your career um, probably deserved, um, probably deserved a, you know, more of time up in the in the show um but as he said at the end no regrets he's loved every minute of it and uh i think that just sort of speaks volumes of the kind of guy he is indeed and uh, producer hubs you're a first debut show with us sir and uh, couldn't have picked a better one unbelievable unbelievable two hours as as the guys have said um, the way he, he he speaks, the way he speaks about others as well, and I think is there's a part in the interview where he's talking about, say, someone like a Patrice Lefebvre, who in a different era um, would have done the had a, a better NHL career, and I think almost you could say that might have been the same for him as well if he was in a, a different era than his skill set, but to that want and desire to to stay and and try and make it again and, and not take easy routes. And then as, as Franny says, then you can translate that to different players in different stages of their career. It's going to be a, a huge asset to the club and just so engaging. And yeah, that, that, that was a, a really awesome two hours. Guys, this was fun. Um, I think we should do it again and maybe a bit more sooner than we did <laughs> the last time. Uh... We sort of managed to get a whole team of players into a room and then it'll grow a bit exhausting. And, we, <laughs> and uh, yeah, all this lockdown malarkey uh, burned us out a little bit. But, um, yeah, after that, I'm reinvigorated. So uh, I guess we better get a range in uh, the next topic, the next guest. Let's get this uh, ball rolling. Uh, the Rick Propant interview, I, I hear. 
<laughs> I would love. I, well, actually, probably never wanted to happen because in my mind, <laughs> what I think would happen during that interview is a lot, lot more entertaining than maybe what would happen. I, well, who I knows? Is, is is that JD muting uh, muting us so you can ask all the questions <laughs> yeah. to him? I just worry, don't meet your heroes sometimes is what I worry about. Well, yeah, no, I, I've already found out his political views. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. but, there's there's but, lots to talk about there, JD. There's lots to get into. You know, <laughs> I, I like getting in deep, so to speak. <laughs> and on that bombshell, of um, course, <laughs> to me, Gareth Hewish, on behalf of uh, Mr. John Donovan, Mr. Neil Francis, and producer Hubs, say thank you very much for listening. Hubs, I forgot to tell you, there's only one rule that you have to follow um, in your new role, and that's that we streak? always end. Excuse me? Not, not, not streak on the first show? No, no, oh, no, no definitely not. Please, uh, <laughs> we've, uh, yeah. we've not cleared uh, YouTube for that. <laughs> we always end on a little bit of Brass Bonanza. Yeah. So here it is. <laughs>